Hello, it's 24th of March 2018 and it's episode 63 of Scavengers Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis and commentary, with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. So this is the point where I'd normally like say, how's your week in Star Wars been? But I feel like that's getting kind of old. <laughs> and there's actually something more worthwhile to say, which is that this is going to be our last episode for a while. Please don't panic. There's a very good reason for this. And it's because I'm going to be going to New York soon. And Kirsty's also going to be in New York. So it's going to be really <laughs> fun. And we're going to see each other. Woo! <laughs> um, but yeah, that also means for podcasting that I'm going to be out of action until mid-April at the absolute earliest. So yeah, it's going to be just under a month probably until you get your next dose of Scavengers Horde after this one. So yeah, I know it feels like a long wait, but I promise we'll be back for vengeance when we come back. And yeah, I'm sure there'll be all kinds of exciting things to come out of our time in New York. So yeah, like stay tuned essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's still lots of stuff that we need to get to eventually in terms of like The Last Jedi release with all the extras and stuff. But mm-hmm. we're also going to have these kind of dry spells after Solo comes out and maybe before Nine starts filming where there's going to be plenty of weeks where we can dive into that stuff in more detail. So exactly. hopefully people can hang on. Yeah, and I have The Last Jedi on pre-order. So it should be waiting for me on my shelf by the time I get back from New York. And nice. then we will be able to do our episode. <laughs> so that'll be fab. And yes. Oh, and just tangentially Star Wars related, I saw Pacific Rim Uprising uh, yesterday. And if you like John Boyega, definitely go and see it. Because it's stupid, very, very stupid, but it's fun and it has a good heart. And it's like not a bad little movie, you know? Like, I've seen some people be too harsh on it. And it's like, well, it's fun, you know? Like, if you just want to kill a few hours, it's a reasonable enough way to do that. And John, like, he's a real leader man in it. So, yeah. John Boyega fans, go and see Pacific Film Uprising. Yeah, I'm definitely going to see it. I'm excited to see his performance. But I've heard that he kind of saves it, you know? Yeah. He's just so (laughs) likeable, you know? You watch it and you're like, I like you, John. You're great. Obviously, his character isn't John, but... It's hard to see him and not see John Baker, especially as he also does the British accent in Pacific Rim. Mm. So, yeah, it's really cool. And it's a good way to distinguish him from Finn as well. Um, Right. So then the first item of news that we have is that there are new Forces of Destiny episodes. Yeah, which episodes stood out to you the most? Which ones did you enjoy? Um, Probably my favourite was Unexpected Company. Mm, with Same. Yeah, Ahsoka, Anakin and Padme. It was really cute. I wasn't expecting to like it so much. Because I was like a little bit salty about the fact that they keep putting Padme with Ahsoka in episodes as opposed to just giving her one of her own. But it worked really well because it kind of had this funny like, oh, does Ahsoka know what's going on with them? And obviously she does because they're not very stealthy. Yeah. But yeah, it was really adorable to see them together. And even, uh, I know there's all this like, Oh, good, they redesigned Anakin, but I actually kind of missed the way that he looked in season one. <laughs> what did we start calling him again? We gave him like pretty a Anakin. name. Oh, pretty Anakin, yeah. Because <laughs> he really was. Yeah. They definitely made him look more manly. Um, yeah. He, he wasn't wearing his nice lipstick this time, and they, <laughs> they gave him his scar, so. It's more accurate, I guess. 
but it's a loss for Pretty Nurse. So, uh... I just, I just really love Pretty Anakin. <laughs> I guess that means we won't be getting a Pretty Anakin doll either. Sad face. Yeah, I wonder if there will be an Anakin doll at some point. Yeah, we got Kylo, and he hasn't been in an episode yet, so it seems a bit unfair to not yeah, have and they, a um, they, one. Yeah, we have the Luke one. Obviously, we have a Luke episode now. They announced the Luke doll quite a while ago, so... Mm. Hmm. Hopefully we get Kylo next time. But yeah, no, I really um, liked seeing Unexpected Company. I agree, that was probably my favourite of the bunch. And yeah, I just... <laughs> I, for like a show that's aimed at very small children, I was impressed and delighted by how frank they were about what Anakin and Padme were probably going to get up to on that I show. I know! It was like, Ahsoka, <laughs> what do you think is going on here? <laughs> oh yeah, we're going to go on a mission. <laughs> and like, my favourite thing is how Anakin just looks so incredibly pissed. Like, because Padme's very diplomatic about it, as you'd expect. Whereas Anakin is just like, ah! He's like so cock-blocked. <laughs> yeah. By the end, he's happy that she came, so... Yeah. There's actually some, like, action and stuff, which justifies her. Um, Not the kind of action Anakin was hoping for. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Um, what other episodes were there? Um, I also really liked the one where Leia meets Maz Kanata. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I like that one too. I was a bit worried about it because I was like, oh god, is it going to retcon some stuff from Return of the Jedi? Like, But it, it doesn't, obviously. It's just kind of a cute little detail that like Maz already knew Han at that point and she hadn't met Leia but had heard about her and like, oh, tell Han she's a keeper. That was sweet. Yeah, I thought that was cute. Like how she's kind of like um, checking out the um, women in his life mm-hmm. and saying, oh yeah, you'll do. kind of. So she clearly like has a soft spot for him, I think. Yeah, and we got Maz and Chewie together, like, oh, boyfriend. Oh, yeah, no, they had a very passionate embrace. There's lots <laughs> of sex in this batch of Forces of Destiny, I must say. The OTP right there. <laughs> I, what would the ship name be? Maz Baca, maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe. It sounds like a brand of tobacco, though. So. <laughs> yeah. Um. Oh, and I really liked the episode of Ray and the Porks. That Me was delightful. Too. Really good. Yeah, there was lots of artwork even before The Last Jedi came out, like floating around on Tumblr of the pork stealing the saber from Rey and everything. So it was like, oh, cool, that stuff's canon now. Because yeah. we didn't get an awful lot of Rey with the porgs in the movie, which makes sense. She has a lot of other things to be doing. But yeah, this was a nice little nod to that stuff. Yeah, I don't think there are any real interactions between her and them. Like, besides her picking up the lightsaber before they yeah, that's like pretty impale much themselves. <laughs> yeah, they're in the background of a lot of the little shots, but obviously she's not paying attention to them. Yeah, she's not, like, singing with them, a la Snow White. <laughs> um, and, yeah, the the only really, like, slightly negative thing I have to say is um, about the Luke episode. So it's great to have Mark Hamill back as the voice of Luke, but I, I guess it just shows how hard it is for an older person to put on their young voice, you know, because it's so, so apparent that that's a middle-aged Mark Hamill trying to do a 20-year-old Luke. Yeah. I kind of love it, because I think it's very adorable that they attempted it, and I love that he was, like, just game for that, and he did his best, but yeah, there's no getting around the fact that he doesn't sound like Luke in Empire, because of course he was never going to. Yeah. Exactly. Like, Luke got all grown up fast. Um, I think it's interesting that 
it seems like they're now going to have some episodes that center around male characters, whereas originally it was kind of assumed that Forces of Destiny would be about centering on female characters. Mm. Yeah, that is interesting. So I think that was like explicit, wasn't it, in its mission statement? It was about the female characters of Star Wars. And then to have an episode where there's decidedly no female characters is quite striking. Yeah. I mean, Luke is probably a good person to start with, that kind of thing, because mm-hmm. everyone loves Luke. It's not like they're starting with a Kylo episode, which I think would generate some controversy. Um, <laughs> or even like an Anakin episode, you know? Like, yeah. all of his have had Ahsoka and Padme in them, so. I'm just thinking what a Forces of Destiny Kylo episode would look like. Oh, Kylo God. Ren learns the power of friendship! I mean, <laughs> that was The Last Jedi, so. <laughs> I think he learned about the power of more than friendship. <laughs> We're gonna get into that later. Yeah, uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, but I, I assume that because we have the doll eventually we're going to get an episode with kylo in it but who knows it hasn't been promised we know that more of them are coming in may so Mm -hmm. we'll just wait and see um i also really love the one of finn and rose together shuttle shock oh yeah no that was nice and that filled like a good little gap in terms of like showing finn doing some piloting yeah and it has some cute little callbacks to like the force awakens interactions with bb8 with him like giving the thumbs up and stuff yes no i like that (laughs) Very sweet. Nice continuity going on. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Then the next thing that we have to talk about is that The Last Jedi won some awards from Empire. Not the Empire. The Empire <laughs> magazine. Which is a thing in the UK. Which is a really cool magazine that I'd recommend. And this is from Empire. The Last Jedi won five categories at the ceremony in Camden's Roundhouse. The sci-fi epic was named Best Film with Ryan Johnson collecting the prize for Best Director and Daisy Ridley taking home Best Actress. The film also won in the visual effects and costume categories. Star Wars original hero Mark Hamill received Empire's Icon Award. Empire, I think of as a magazine written by fans for fans. First and foremost, that describes me, and I think the fans realise that. I'm one of them. He said, adding, I share this with all of you and with the fans. Without them, I certainly wouldn't be standing here. And yeah, I just wanted to include this because it's not like we can have like a deep, deep discussion about the fact it won a few awards. But I just think it's nice that it got this kind of positive press. And it's especially notable. So I believe the Empire Awards they're voted for through public vote. Mm-hmm. Yep. So this is just regular fans on the internet submitting votes to this. And I think it's kind of like a nice counter to the narrative that like all normal stars fans hated The Last Jedi. Like, and again, it's like a niche that are claiming that and I don't mean to like dismiss anyone who does have like genuine issues with the film that's valid but I think sometimes it's so easy to focus on the negative side of the reaction that you can forget that a lot of people really loved this film and I think that this reflects that exactly yeah and it was like a broad range of categories as well like I'm obviously with Mark receiving the icon that's a little different because that's not just about The Last Jedi but Mm. Daisy winning it for her performance and best film and best director that's a pretty big deal so people liked this movie exactly and I'm especially proud for Daisy because I haven't seen enough people like talking about how great she was in the film like it seems like most of the positive praise for the performances went to Adam Driver and Mark Hamill I did see lots of good notices for Daisy but people won like singling her out as the standout you know and I think that's a really good thing because she was just so subtle and brought so much emotion and so much feeling to it and yeah I'm really happy that she got some notice me too 
Well deserved, Daisy. <laughs> and she also voiced a great rabbit in Peter Rabbit, which I also recommend because it has two Star Wars actors in it, Donald Gleeson and Daisy Ridley. And also like in Star Wars, Donald Gleeson is trying to exterminate Daisy Ridley's character. So it's like this synergy going on. It's really good. So General Hux moves to the country and finds love at AU. Yeah, it literally is. I'm not kidding. Especially because he does exactly the same voice. Like, so <laughs> McGregor, as played by Donald Gleeson, he is basically General Hux. Like, right down to his, like, characterization, because he's very fastidious, he's very obsessed with order, everything has to be in its proper place and be extremely neat, he's really scrupulous. And, yeah, the whole his whole arc in the films that he needs to loosen up love nature and open up his heart and stuff so yeah maybe that's like foreshadowing for episode nine yeah maybe it's general hook's redemption arc and kylo ren stays evil yeah well a good time with the ideas that donald was pitching you know like <laughs> kylo ren is <laughs> I will that out, by the way <laughs> you know it'd be perfect <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, then the next story is that Lord and Miller claim executive producer credit on Solo while speaking at the third annual Glass Animation Festival on Friday in Berkeley, California. Phil Lord and Chris Miller revealed the credit they elected to take on Solo, a Star Wars story, after their shocking mid-production exit as directors of the movie last year. We were really proud of the many contributions we made to that film, Miller told the audience. In light of the creative differences, we elected to take an executive producer credit. Ooh. <laughs> what are your feelings on this, Kirsty? I feel like this is a happy ending for everyone. Mm. You know, like that's that sounds pretty fancy. Um I don't know for sure if they're happy about it or not. Obviously they're gonna say that they are in public, right? Like mm. we don't really know what went down, whatever people say, so yeah, if everyone seems happy, then great. Yeah. I think the thing that's striking to me is that me, my ignorance, because I'm obviously not in the industry at all, I kind of always assumed that the executive producers were more hands-off and that they didn't actually do much on a practical level to like help get films going. And it was the actual producers who did more of the legwork and had more creative input. So I find it quite striking that they would take the executive producer credit more than the producer credit it might be the kind of situation where they get more money as executive producers you know so at this point that's probably the main thing that concerns them probably yeah how much compensation will we get from this but yeah it's just interesting to me and yeah of course it's all very political at this stage because they're not going to go around and like trash talking kathleen kennedy in the movie and stuff they need to be very polite and reasonable about things because reasons but yeah, it's also tantalising and it makes one very curious to know the full story, like, unfiltered <laughs> through the PR lens. Yeah, so I, I wanted to get lots of press on it in the EW stuff that came out about Solo last mm. month, I think. Um, but that was just deeply uncomfortable to read because they so obviously didn't want to talk about it. And again, it was all coached in these very, like, oh, we're, it was all amicable and all friends. It was like... Yeah, we might hear more about it once the movies come out and things have kind of settled down a little. Yeah, exactly. We'll get our gossip. Still weird to think that we're so close to a new Star Wars movie. It's like two months oh, away. Yeah. It doesn't feel close at all. It feels really distant, actually. And it feels like we got the trailer such a long time ago now. Um, but I'm sure they're really going to be ramping up the press soon. Because, A, they have to. Because 
a lot of people don't even know this film exists. Like, I was talking to someone I know, and I mentioned, like, oh, you're going to see the new Han Solo movie. And she was like, what? Mm -hmm. And I had to explain that this movie existed because she's a Star Wars fan, but she literally had no idea this was on the horizon. And, yeah, those kinds of encounters always remind me about why a solid PR campaign is so, so important because, yeah, otherwise people just don't know it's out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're getting closer and closer. I'm guessing that they will do another trailer, do you think? Mm Oh, yeah, they have to. The first one was only a teaser. Yeah, and at the very least, we know we're going to get TV spots, so there will be more footage. Mm -hmm. But we'll get the tie-in books in a few weeks as well, so that might start building up hype. Yeah, and I think we've also seen from Ron Howard's social media that they've started doing some money press for it as well. Oh, yeah. There's definitely yeah. stuff happening. Cool. Um, right. And then the last news story we have is that Ryan Johnson has said that he won't let The Last Jedi backlash affect the direction of his new trilogy. And yeah, would you be able to read this bit out, Kirsty? Sure. So this was at South by Southwest again. He was speaking with Eric Davis from Fandango. And Ryan was asked if the critical response from some fans to his movie would influence how he approached the new trilogy. And this was his reply. He said, I feel like every Star Wars thing that ever gets made has a big, loud response because Star Wars fans are passionate and that's what makes them awesome. I don't think it's possible if you're really telling a story you care about and having it come from your heart. It's just not possible to be intellectually processing what everyone else wants, nor would it be a healthy thing. I don't think that's a good way to tell a story. Mm. So I'm so happy he's saying stuff like <laughs> yes. this. He's very diplomatically saying, fuck no. Yeah, exactly. I, I bet what he's thinking when he says, that's what makes them awesome. He's probably thinking, that's what makes them assholes. <laughs> <laughs> I think he takes a very great response. In, like, he's just, his approach is so chill and he interacts with fans very civilly on Twitter and only when someone like, gets a bit crazy and like actually threatens him does he block them and say so and he's just like you know what i will not be okay with physical threats of violence but yeah if you're just you know you have a concern about the film and you want to talk it out because he's a fan too he'll have that conversation with you like i've seen a lot of the time he, he will talk to people like whether they're a journalist from like someone like slash film or they're just a fan and asking him like why did you do this with luke he'll explain it yeah. And anyone who writes like anything knows that they can't be out there anticipating what any possible audience member would think about their story. Like you have to write for yourself. And then if people respond to the story or the art or whatever it is you're making, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. But you can't control those responses and you can't anticipate everyone's like yeah. otherwise, what you're saying doesn't have a point of view. Mm. You know, exactly. It's, lots of people love The Last Jedi. Some people didn't. It's always going to be that way. Yeah. No, that's so true. And yeah, like you say, I love that Ryan has this perspective on it. Because when I made that comment about him thinking, oh, those assholes, I, I don't really think that's what he thinks. I'm sure he does wish that certain people would conduct themselves in a better way. But I do think he really understands that the place it's coming from and that he appreciates that even when people are angry and upset, it's coming from a place of love. And it's because they care so much that they're hurt and that they make these kinds of comments and stuff. You know, he gets that. But yeah, like you say, you cannot be thinking about all those kinds of factors when you're trying to do something creative. You know, you drive yourself mad. And I think that's ultimately the worst way to 
craft a story, you know, because it would basically end up being like a tick box exercise, you know? You'd be like, well, we can't do this because it might offend this group of fans. Or we must do this because we've heard that lots of people really love this thing and they're going to really want it. You know, I think that's like a recipe for disaster because I think it just becomes pandering and it becomes bland and it becomes boring. And I don't want that for Star Wars. So. I really wish I'm not going to like lecture the rest of the fandom because I'm a fan too. But I just I wish people would maybe think about that stuff a bit more before they decide to directly attack people on social media for writing a story that they don't love. Yeah. Okay, right, then we are ready to move into the next part of the show, and the main feature, if you will, which is a discussion of The Last Jedi novelization by Jason Fry. Um, and yeah, we are going to be concentrating on that novelization, just to be clear, not the junior novelization by Michael Colgate, um, which I haven't read, because it's still not being released in the UK, but I have very much read the adult novelization, and so has Kirsty. so... Yeah, I, I guess let's start with our overall thoughts, Kirsty. What did you think about the like novel in terms of your initial impressions? I enjoyed it. I thought it was a faithful adaptation of what we got in the movie. Mm. Yeah, very much so. Um, and obviously it includes some of the deleted scenes and like extra little tidbits. Um, so the expanded edition name, as silly as I kind of think that is, <laughs> it holds up. You know, there's stuff in there that wasn't in the final cut of the film. Yeah, and not a lie. Yeah, and obviously because it's a different medium, you get to a certain extent a greater deal of like internality and the the character motivations, and mm. you don't get as much as you'd like in the perfect world. But that really is because Jason Fry doesn't know where they're going in nine, so he can only yeah. do so much, and he he only really has the script and the movie to work from. So you know he's adapting that story. So yeah he did as best as he could yeah no very much i i definitely think he did a good job working within those constraints because yeah it's not like writing your own novel you're beholden to like myriad different like things and obligations particularly like a future that is as yet unwritten well it's actually written right now (laughs) but it will have been unwritten when jason fry was writing this novel um so yeah, like it's so hard to write around that, you know? And I think all things considered, he did a good job and where he could find an opening to expand and provide more insight into the character's thoughts and perspective of something. So I think he did a really good job of pulling that off. Especially with um, the characters of Luke and Leia. Mm-hmm. Especially Leia, to be honest. I think the insights we got into her thought process and just the type of person she is, that was all really effective to me. Yeah, I agree. Um, there were certain characters that I felt weren't done as well as others, but there were parts that I liked. So it wasn't like, oh, this character's a write-off for me. It was just mm. there were certain things that were played up that I en- ended up... I can't... I think they might have been in like earlier drafts of Ryan's script, and then mm. we'll get into it with specifics, but um, yeah, overall, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. How did it compare to the Force Awakens novelization for you? <laughs> I thought it was much better. Well, uh, much better written. Um, mm. so, sorry, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that whole sentence again because I totally messed that up. Because I was just yeah, thanks, Alan Dean Foster. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that this novel is much better written. It's just mm. yeah. Um, to me, I love the Force Awakens novelization, but kind of as a bit of a joke. 
Sorry, Alex yeah. and Foster. There are just some... The Purple Pros is kind of on another level. Like, I think Jason Fry does a better job. And it, it might just be because with The Force Awakens production, things got moved around a lot more, it seems like. Um, mm. So, yeah, I don't know how much he had to work with. But the character... <laughs> and, it, again, like, having this as the second chapter, Jason Fry would have had a firmer grasp on the characters and who they were. Um, yeah. Kylo Ren was something of an enigma before The Force Awakens came out, right? And yeah. Alan Dean Foster wouldn't have seen the finished movie, so his characterization is a little iffy in places. Yeah. So, yeah, overall, no, I would say this true. is a, a better novel. Yeah. I, I think it's probably objectively better, but perhaps a little less entertaining. So I think you can go through The Force Awakens novelization almost in like a mystery science theater frame of mind. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just like hilarious for that reason. It <laughs> um, <laughs> sounds so mean. No, they're um, like there are parts of that novelization that have like stuck to us as a fandom. Like we remember specific quotes because they're so funny. Yeah, I can like use my like muscle memory, like when I'm just in the bookshop, to pick up the Force Awakens novelization and skip to like Kylo's speech on the stars and the nature of order in the galaxy and I'll just be stood there in the bookshop like sniggering to myself because it's so funny yeah. just the whole concept of Kylo delivering a speech like that although to be honest now with the context of The Last Jedi that speech doesn't seem quite so ridiculous it's still ridiculous but not as utterly ridiculous you know yeah I guess now we've seen more of him as a person and he could have mm. launched into this big monologue in terms of what he envisioned for the galaxy as he was offering <laughs> it to Ray. But <laughs> I'd love it if he like pulled out like a like wall chart, his manifesto, like graphs. <laughs> this is my vision. <laughs> Do I have buy-in from you, Ray? I need buy-in. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh my yeah, I get what you mean. It's like this is it's well written, but because it's in line with what we already understood from the movie and the characters generally seem on point, then it's not like, oh, I can't believe this quote. It's so funny. That, that's yeah, a exactly. testament to Jason's writing. So, Yeah. It's like you don't have these like, really eccentric digressions, basically. Yeah. There are a little more of those in the Junior novelization that I have read. <laughs> but we'll, maybe we'll get into those. Who knows? <laughs> There's a lot yeah. to cover. And just before we get into things in a deeper level, We'll just say, as a disclaimer, we're not going to be able to discuss everything, obviously. There's just too much. No. So we've done our best. The show notes are very long, but we'll just see how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. So on that note, let's launch into this thing. And yeah, like as Kirsty said, we're going to have to like skip over great swathes of this and speak quite generally about others, but we'll do our best. Um, so yeah, obviously the novel opens with a prologue. And it opens with this bombshell line. Luke Skywalker stood in the cooling sands of Tatooine, his wife by his side. Dum, dum, dum. Yeah, seriously, it was so funny because um, the first info we had on the novelization was from an anonymous Reddit poster. And so they were relaying all the details of the novelization. <laughs> and when they relayed this part, people were like, what the hell? <laughs> You know, because he kind of posted it about context. <laughs> so initially it wasn't even clear it was like a dream and like a what-if thing. And it's like, why do you withhold that? What <laughs> the hell? You he know? wanted to mess with people. Yeah, he clearly did. Because I'm sorry, that's not something you do innocently. <laughs> you don't read that and think, oh yeah, that's a thing. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. 
Yeah, it was interesting to have the novel start this way because it totally makes sense if you're looking at Luke's mindset at the beginning of The Last Jedi because Mm. it's clear that this is like, this is not a dream scenario in that this is what should have happened. Like, this is what could have happened and it would have been a disaster for the galaxy. Yeah. Exactly, but... And I also think it's effective because it fits really well into the themes of the film. Because, like, I think Luke's whole motive in The Last Jedi is that he retreated from the galaxy at large because he felt he was doing more harm than good and that he just needed to have absolutely no involvement in galactic affairs because he was only poisoning things and making things worse. And I think, like, the opening of the book, the prologue, that takes that mentality to its most extreme end. Like the fact like with this whole suggestion that Luke led a completely uneventful life mm-hmm. pretty much and just never left his home planet. Because yeah, that's like the natural end point of his desire when you take it to like its terminus. And I think that ultimately vindicates why Luke changes his mind because it's like yeah, like I can see some pluses for Luke in this scenario, but for the galaxy at large, this is a bad, bad thing. Exactly. And it's it's really interesting how Fry ties it into the themes of like the whole let the past die, which is obviously not supposed to be the right thing to take away from the message of the movie as a whole, but it's a theme. It's there presented as an idea for the protagonist to then reject. Um, mm. So in the prologue, it says, let the past go. That's what Cammy always told him. So it's like mm-hmm. this is this is a Luke that had he made those choices and just kind of shrugged his shoulders and been apathetic about the Empire and ignored Leia's plea to Ben Kenobi, like this is what would have happened and it's disastrous, but because he's living this relatively comfortable life on Tatooine, it like it poses it very insidiously. It's like, well then he would have been okay. You know, he would have had this okay life and would that have been enough? And the answer is clearly no, because Luke wakes up and is very troubled by it and realizes this is the force telling him he is making a bad choice right now. Mm. Yeah. Like Luke isn't meant to be living this false life of comfort. And it's like, it's this real bittersweet thing, isn't it? Because the Luke that we see in The Last Jedi, he's alone. He's isolated himself. He doesn't have that wife and that you know the sense of like having a family business and being comfortable but he has more important things to be doing yeah exactly i think it's like an illustration of what would have happened had luke taken the easy path not in the sense of becoming a sith because (laughs) yeah prologue luke is decidedly not a sith but yeah it's something that has relevance to our real world i think you know it's about this is kind of what happens if you're a nerd you just don't do anything in the face of like tyranny and oppression is like luke who gave up on all his dreams about flying out into the galaxy and being a pilot like his father you know Mm -hmm. because those initial dreams of his they didn't match up with what he became because he wasn't i guess like arrogant enough to think i'm going to become the greatest jedi the world has ever seen or the galaxy has ever seen (laughs) um but yeah he did have those high-minded dreams I think in real life a lot of us have high-minded dreams as young people, but they kind of fade as we adjust them as we get older and we become more, I don't know, worn down by life and like have to revise our expectations, you know? Whereas the Luke we all know and love, he 
never let go of those dreams and he, they just evolved and he built on them and stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm also going to take it as a bit of light Ray Skywalker theory trolling. <laughs> yes. Especially combined with Luke calling Ray his niece to the caretakers later on. Oh, that was so, so mean. <laughs> He's poking fun a little bit, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if he knew how much salt that would put in certain wounds. <laughs> Hopefully people are taking it graciously, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, one hopes. <laughs> uh, Yeah, but to keep this marching on, um, then the next chapter after the prologue um, starts with Han's funeral. And yeah, I was wondering, do you want to talk a bit about that, Kirsty, and maybe read a little bit out? Sure. So it says that Leia like does not want to hold this funeral and that Han would have hated it, um, which feels very true to those characters, right? That it's about moving forward and that they can grieve privately. But it almost feels like indulgent, but she's kind of pressed yeah. into it. With, um, I think it's Akbar who comes to her and tells her that it's the people around her that kind of need to have this taking stock of the situation a little bit before they move on because they know the First Order is pursuing them. Yeah. Um, there's some cute little details for the way Han Leia feels. Like she <laughs> thinks about this figurine that he carved for her on Endor, and then like he didn't think it was very good, and like it's just very sweet. Um, yeah. And it brings up the dice for the first time as well. So she's talking about like going onto the Falcon for the first time and noting how lightly Han traveled and he didn't have that many possessions, um, which again feels true to the Han that we know. Yeah. Um, and I, there were some really he. You said earlier he does write Leia very well, um, mm. you know, talking about her reflecting on her life and how, over the five decades of her life, in fact, war and grief had been her only truly faithful companions. But she had never let either stop her from doing what had to be done. Like that basically sums up Leia at the beginning of the Last Jedi, right? She's mm. suffering so much, but she has to keep soldiering on. Yeah, definitely. I think Fry does a really good job of underlying how strong Leia is. Like at every point, without like denying her emotions and like denying that everything that she goes through is a real struggle for her, you know, which I really appreciated because she is super, super strong, but strength doesn't mean anything unless you're kind of struggling alongside it. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell me if the, you think this is a bit of a reach. Um, there's this part that says, Han fancied himself a scoundrel, Leia said, smiling at that last word. But he wasn't. He loved freedom, for himself certainly, but for everybody else in the galaxy too. Does that kind of remind you of some of the things that we were getting from the EW interviews recently about Solo and Han's arc there as it's being described? Like him desperately trying to carve out a little freedom for himself? Um, To be honest, I wasn't thinking of that consciously when I was reading the novel. But now you've pointed it out, I definitely think that could be deliberate because... I've read interviews with Jason Fry where he said that he was very conscious about like, adding little nods to the other canon materials where possible, and I certainly think that could include some allusions to Solo. So, yeah, if that makes sense. Mm. I mean, obviously, when you first meet Han, he's he's living this life of freedom in that he kind of prides himself on how he answers to nobody, and he's a lone wolf and everything, apart from Chewie, obviously. But um, it just seemed more of a conscious, like, this is what he stood for. Yeah, maybe that will be what his little sunny boy will fight for as well. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) Okay, then I think the next thing that we probably want to talk about is um, the depiction of Hux and his dynamic with the older First Order officers, because I think that's actually really intriguing, and I think what Fry adds 
actually builds a lot on what we see in the film. So in the film, it's basically just looks and expressions you see people giving each other, whereas there's real like elaboration on that mm. in the book. Um, yeah, so we have this quote. Huck suppressed a surge of annoyance. Adrison Peavy was old, a veteran of Imperial service who'd served with Huck's late father. These men and women had been useful in their time, but that time was at an end. The First Order had decapitated the New Republic leadership with a single demonstration of its technological might. Peavy and his generation saw the First Order's impending triumph as a restoration of the Empire, not realising how that only proved their obsolescence. They couldn't, or wouldn't, see that the regime they'd served was not merely gone, but superseded. The First Order was the fulfilment of what the Empire had struggled to become. It had distilled and perfected its strengths, while eliminating its weaknesses. And yeah, I think this sort of thing is really interesting, because I think a lot of people look at the First Order and they almost see like a cosplay organisation, <laughs> where it's just all about like, yay, Empire, woo! You know, mm. it's just about trying to bring the Empire back. Whereas I think this shows that, at the very least, for Hux, it's not about that. It's about taking the bones of the Empire and then creating like a stronger and better military organisation from that. And yeah, it just underscores like how ruthless and cold he is as a character. So he's clearly thinking about ways of taking these people off the board because, yeah, they're impediments to him, essentially, because they are stuck in the old ways as far as he's concerned and they're kind of reaching the end of their usefulness. Yeah, something when I was reading the novel for the first time, I think that Pride did a really excellent job with Hux. Um, mm, I liked same. Hux more in this movie and found him more interesting than in The Force Awakens, but the novelization kind of just confirmed that for me because um, yeah. it really builds him up as the foil that we recognise for Kylo in The Force Awakens, but just, you know, even more so, and kind of hints yeah. where things might be going in Nine. Um, but it's it's really interesting for me that they, like, emphasise this as the kind of face of the First Order, because it seemed like a conscious departure from what we got in The Force Awakens, where I don't know if like people are super aware of this, but from my perspective, watching kind of the background characters and the people who were, like, answering Hux and The Force Awakens and everything, everyone seemed very young. Like, you look at Mitaka and the people who were, like, actually controlling things, they were all really young. Like, I don't remember seeing an older face. Like, yeah. Hux, Hux was young, and he seemed like one of the older ones. So, it almost seems like the opposite of that, where here they're emphasising that the people surrounding him are, like, older than him and don't take him too seriously, and he doesn't take them seriously. Yeah. It's very interesting. But like yeah. Ryan is trying to say something quite different here than what JJ was saying. Yeah. Like this kind of stuff, it's very, it kind of makes me think of Ray Sloan. Because in Empire's, in Empire's End, the last of the Aftermath trilogy, we see that she kind of like advocates for Armitage Hux when he was a young boy and she kind of looks out for him and tries to protect him from his father. And I kind of wonder like what that relationship was like and how much that informed Hux's perception of the Empire and the First Order. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, like, I really do hope we get a Hux novel at some point. Because, yeah, reading like just how he's characterised here, that does lay so much fascinating groundwork for me. You know, and it's like, I read more about this person because, yeah, he's very entertaining and there's a big, bigger story to tell there, I think. I think we will, because he's really put forward as the face of the First Order in a way that Snoke isn't, to be honest. Like, 
Yeah. Ray Sloan's mentioned later in kind of Snoke's internal monologue about how he he ended up being the leader that no one expected. Um, mm. But because Snoke's so in the shadows and doesn't put himself out there, like Hux is the face, right? Yeah. So he's probably on the posters. <laughs> and he's the one who believes in it so strongly. Whereas, like this quote says, the older like Imperial officers, they kind of just want to restore something that already failed. Whereas he's like, oh, I want to bring something new. It's still not super clear to me how new that would be or why he thinks it's so different, apart from mm. the technological side of it. Um, like, oh, we have a bigger Star Killer base. It's bigger than the Death Star. But again, maybe this is stuff that will end up kind of playing into Nine. Oh, like how he contrasts with Kylo. I think there's a quote later on when he's going to visit Snoke and he's talking about how he perceives the Force in his own mind. Um, he mm. clearly does not trust Kylo and you know, he sees them as these sorcerers and that's in contrast with how he values his technological pursuits. Yeah. I think that um, I think that the whole thing with Hux and his like intention to like get rid of the old empire and create something new and better I do think that is closely related to the whole let the past die thing that Kylo has going on mm. because Kylo's very much about that but from a more Force-centric point of view because when he says let the past die he's thinking more Jedi and Sith and Snoke and Luke, blah 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 all that kind of thing. Hux is, has a kind of similar mentality but for like the governments because mm-hmm. he's like let the New Republic die let the Empire die, let the First Order rise and I think both Hux and Kylo they both fall into the same pitfall because they're so obsessed with the past in terms of its destructions that they can't move on from the past Mm -hmm. so while they grandstand and make claims about leaving the past behind they're actually the ones who are most embedded in the past because yeah Hux may think he's created something new and wonderful and special but really it does look very much like an Empire cosplay organization to be honest and it's kind of similar with Kylo like how different is his new Empire going to be when he's still at the head of this totalitarian regime, you know? Well, yeah. It's, yeah, it's just interesting. It's kind of true to real life in that it's trying to give fascism this fresh makeover, but it's still fascism. You yeah, know what I mean? Exactly. So. <laughs> okay, so let's skip ahead a little bit to Chapter 5 when we get to Ray and Luke on Act 2. Um, so this is page 57. It says, She'd been meant to come to this planet, to land on this island, to climb this stair. She was sure of it. Her whole life, all those desperate days hunkered down in Jakku's heat and dust, all those desolate nights adrift in its cold and loneliness had been a prelude to this. But I love this idea of destiny because that's really what kind of comes through in the film, right? That Rey was supposed to come here and it, it connects The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi because Kylo sees in her mind that she's been dreaming of the island and the ocean. Mm. Like, this is supposed yeah. to be where Rey is. Yeah. That's so true. I think it all makes it feel really, like, grand and... I don't know, it makes it feel mythic in a way that's right. It's not just like, oh yeah, I'm here on an errand, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it says something very flat about that. And yeah, I love how that's all handled, this sense of like Ray's fulfilling something that was always meant to be. And I guess it also fits into like the whole will of the Force thing, you know? Because if you take that to like its natural conclusion, then Ray is on the island because the Force wants her to be on the island. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's interesting. And that whole concept of the cosmic force that 
raises all these interesting questions about free will because how much choice do you have in things if the cosmic force is potentially dictating your movements yeah that was one of my favorite parts about this book actually like it's there in the movie this idea of destiny and how snoke talks about ray and kylo being the darkness and the light to meet it and everything um Mm. but because you get more of that internal work of like this is how ray thinks of the force at this point and then what she learns through the movie and and you know what changes when the visions don't go the way that, that her and Kylo think they do, and everything. Like mm. it's it's really interesting to get that extra element of her arc because yeah, she is learning, but it's not so much learning from Luke, but from her, her own experiences. Mm. Definitely right. Then we'll skip ahead to chapter six, where we get some more good old Hux content. Because, um, yeah, as Kirsty pointed out, there's lots of quality Hux stuff in this book. Um, and, yeah, we basically get Hux, like, mediating on what could be in store for him in the future. Commander of the Supremacy would be an excellent title, surpassed only by that of Supreme Leader Hux. Hux almost whispered those three words to himself, but caught himself in time. Snoke had spies everywhere in the First Order including, quite possibly, electronic ones in the turbo lift leading to his private domain in the supremacy's heart. And, yeah, this is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> it's so perfect that he'd be having that thought. And yeah, you made a really good point in your notes, Kirsty, about the idea that potentially that observation about there being surveillance cameras in the turbo lift, that could have ramifications if JJ wanted to run with that. For episode nine, so that means it's possible that the whole conversation between Kylo and Ray later in the film could have been recorded, and then that could come back to bite them on the ass, sort of. Yeah, I mean, it kind of lines up with you. You get that conversation between them in the movie, obviously, and they're in this place that they perceive as private, but because mm. it's Snoke's elevator leading to his boudoir. Um, mm. Yeah, it makes sense that there could be a camera in there or whatever the Star Wars version of that would be. And, um, yeah, again, it's the kind of thing that, like, very easily could not factor in at all. It's just, like, a little thread there. Um, yeah. But I feel like it's very in keeping with the hooks that we see, that he's very ambitious, that he, like, yeah. he's doesn't really respect Snoke. He's scared of him because he knows he has the Force. He's, like, a wizard in his mind. Um, mm. And he doesn't respect Kylo either. Like, later on, when Kylo becomes Supreme Leader, he's not about it. Because even before that happens... He's thinking like, oh, Kylo Ren is his loathsome creature that <laughs> Snoke has and it's just them and they're running around wasting their time trying to find Luke Skywalker and there are more important things that the First Order need to be doing. And it all ties back in with what Hux says about his personal interests in The Force Awakens, right? That Hux yeah. just doesn't care about the Force side of things. That's not his focus. So naturally, mm. his interests are going to conflict with Snoke's and Kylo's, but even more so Kylo's because... Snoke at least had this like political understanding of things, whereas Kylo doesn't seem to express any interest in that stuff. Yeah, no, like Hux and Kylo, they're like a real odd couple. I'd actually love to see like a um, nice straight up sitcom just with both of them. You know, like days in the life of like the government of the First Order. <laughs> That'd be so hilarious. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, like I love all this stuff. Um, 
And I think in the um, Visual Dictionary, there's something about Hux like coveting the title of Grand Marshal of the First Order. Um, but I think Jason Fry takes that to the next level because Supreme Leader Hux is definitely up from Grand Marshal. So mm-hmm. He like raises the stakes for his ambitions, which I like. Uh-huh. Yeah, he, d- he does a really great job with Hux. Like, it really lays the groundwork, especially because I've seen some people kind of criticise the way Hux is used a lot in the, in the movie for comic- comedic relief. And he is very funny, but towards the end of the movie, when you start to see Kylo cracking, even as he ascends the Supreme Leader, psychologically, he's just going off the deep end, right? Especially with seeing Luke again and everything. And Hux is aware of all that, and you see these little expressions, and that's explored to an even greater degree in the novel. And you can just see how if JJ chooses to go in that direction, and to an extent, I think he's going to have to, we just don't know exactly what it's going to look like, Hux is being kind of built up again as this like very threatening presence for Kylo yeah no it's really interesting foreshadowing in my opinion and yeah I almost wonder if Fry does such a good job with Hux because there was more freedom to expand on Hux's thoughts than there was with say Kylo so I found when reading it that Kylo of all the characters I think Fry perhaps gets into Kylo's head the least like there are some parts that are from his perspective and where you get his view on things um, and we'll obviously be discussing those. For the most part, it's very withholding. So, like in the Force Bond scenes, I think it's mostly told from Ray's perspective, mm-hmm. for example. And I think that's because, yeah, I think Fry actually sent a tweet about it when someone asked, and it was something about you need to be very, very careful about how you tell these stories because you don't want to step on the toes of the storytellers who will follow you. And so I think that was where that came from. Yeah, and it's the nature of the movie itself, right? It kind of presents Kylo Ren in this ambiguous light. Some people love him, some people hate him, some people think he's sympathetic, some people really do not. So to an extent, you need to keep his motivations kind of protected because that's what's going to be key going into Nine. Yeah, So we have have our reading and we believe that to an extent the novelization is what supports that, but it doesn't go deeper to confirm everything that people want to know because it can't like we we don't have the last part of the story yet yeah exactly can't spoil things um yep and then following on from the huck stuff we actually get the novel's version of the scene where snoke like interacts with kylo it's very similar and loyal to the film version of the scene but there is a key difference where snoke actually touches kylo and yeah so it goes like this Take that ridiculous thing off, said Snoke, his voice dripping with disgust. Shock froze Kylo momentarily. He slowly reached up and removed the mask, revealing his scarred face. Snoke rose from his throne, the slow shuffling of his feet hinting at pain that dogged his every step. Kylo stood stone-faced as Snoke approached him, willing himself to remain still as one finger stretched for his cheek, then higher. The fingertip traced Kylo's eyelid, leaving a streak of moisture behind. Yes, Snoke said. There it is. You have too much of your father's heart in you, young Solo. Creepy as hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the abusive subtext here is pretty hard to ignore, right? Because he's basically touching mm. Kylo against his will. Like, Kylo has to force himself to remain still. Yeah. Mocking him for showing emotion, like that moisture is obviously referring to Kylo's tears, and saying that's mm. what reminds him of his father. And that kind yeah. of... It really, the film did this in a great way too, obviously, but it kind of sets that up as Kylo's challenge throughout the movie that he's too much like his father 
He and mm. I think even later in the throne room scene, um, Snoke like makes a reference to Anakin as well that he was too sentimental too. So it's like this is the thing about Skywalker and Solo men. Oh no, they have too much emotion. There's too much compassion. They have too much love. Yeah. So, yeah. They're too soft for their <laughs> wicked masters. Um. Yeah, and I find it really creepy how like Kylo is so disciplined in that situation. Like you say, how he wills himself to keep still and not react. Because that tells me that this has happened before. And that is probably something he's had to get used to just because it's part of his training, perhaps. And Oh, it's just horrid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because from Kylo's perspective, it's like, I did what you asked and it wasn't easy for me. I killed my father even though I didn't want to. Mm. And that's still not enough. It kind of sets up like, okay, now he's going to have to go and prove himself. He has to try and kill mom. has to eventually yep. try and kill Ray. Like, it's never going to be enough for Snoke. Yeah, exactly. And that's why Snoke needs to go. Yeah, then we get some interesting treatment of the Ray and Luke dynamic. And yeah, I really like what Fry does with it because we do get this very palpable sense of how Ray feels like a real outsider to proceedings. And that, yeah, we obviously get that in the film as well because she says explicitly, I, I want to know what my place in this is. And yeah, I think Fry expands on that. And he also does a good job of like depicting that dynamic between like Ray and Luke and the complexities in that because I think there's probably more lighter touches in the novel compared to the film in terms of that relationship so yeah I was wondering if you wanted to talk a bit about that Kirsty and how you felt it was handled yeah I I really enjoyed Ray and Luke's dynamic in the book it's a it's already funny for me in the movie but they have these extra little bantery exchanges that just are really cute I mean, it depends on your perspective. I think they're cute. It's obviously Luke being kind of mean to Ray, but she takes it in good stride because she's just determined to wait him out, basically. Um, so this part was really interesting for me when she said, well, no, it's not her saying it, but it's about Ray. It says, Jakku had trained her to do two things better than anyone else could. The first was to salvage broken things. The second was to wait. This is super interesting because this quote obviously is in reference to Luke. Like he said, no, not teaching you, not interested. And she's like, well, I'm just going to wait here. Maybe change your mind if I stick around long enough. Um, But what's really fascinating is that the sentiment is kind of repeated later when Ray leaves Kylo on the supremacy. And it's about her deciding to wait and see what the force does with her and Kylo. And that's like, it's got to be a conscious echoing on Fry's part. And I think it was done really well. Yeah. Kind of bookends Ray's arc across the movie. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good observation. And yeah, that sort of thing is definitely deliberate. It's like there's mirroring like that in the film itself, like how the lessons that Luke gives to Ray, they're then mirrored by what Luke says to Kylo at the very end of the film. It's all these parallels going on. Yeah. Like again, like poetry, it rhymes. And it's nice that, that even extends to the novels. And it's such yeah. a fateful understanding of Ray's character, in my opinion, because she really has this stubborn streak. And you can, Mm. depending on your perspective, you can interpret that as a flaw. Like if you look at what she does throughout The Last Jedi as a mistake, like she shouldn't have gone to Kylo, she shouldn't have trusted him or believed that she could turn him. Or if you see that as a strength, and that's what I choose to do, I think that that's ultimately what the story is going to show us, that Rey is not making mistakes here. She's learning. There's a difference. Mm. Um, and, And that she has this real cycle of emotion with Luke where... You know, she can see how much he's grieving here for Han. 
And like when she mentions Kylo Ren as a name to her, to him, it like mm-hmm. it says the mere mention of that name seemed to pierce Luke where he sat slumped beside Chewie. You don't really get that so much in the movie, I don't think. He doesn't seem to react to the name Kylo Ren so much. Yeah, um, that's true. And yeah, like there, like you said, there is this kind of characterization of Ray as like, okay, I feel like I'm kind of intruding on some grief here, but at the same time, we really need you. Yeah. So she has this like very conflicted approach to Luke where she has pity for him and then she has anger and then she's just like, right, I'm just determined to wait him out. Yeah, then there's some interesting stuff in terms of like Leia and like she basically uses the force to reach out for her surroundings and she's thinking about Luke and yeah we get this kind of from her perspective Luke had rejected the teaching of the Jedi the order had forbidden emotional attachments warning that they left the Jedi vulnerable to the lures of the dark side and indeed it was a love curdled into jealousy and possessiveness that had led their father Anakin Skywalker into darkness and despair and yeah, I just really like how Fry like draws that in. So again, like it does really make you feel that you're reading in an instalment in a much larger saga, and that's the kind of reflective element that you couldn't really force into the films without being a bit. I don't know. Like it would be hard to do it in a subtle or natural way. You know, it would feel very forced. Whereas in a novel, that sort of thing does feel right because there is so much more room for the characters in a, mono- in a monologues and reflections. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like I think that's really cool because a lot of the time it is easy to suspend the prequels from your mind, but that is like the origin of the whole story and that was what led to all the chaos in the original trilogy that his children had to put right. And so I do think it's really worthwhile and important to actually remind people of this was where the problem was. This like jealousy and this possessive, like corrupted love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was a real strength because he's obviously drawing on stuff from Bloodline and Leia's development there, and to come into terms of who her father had been. Um, mm. Because obviously she missed out on that in the original trilogy. They just hadn't decided until pretty late in the game that he was her father. Um, yes. And then, like, we even got stuff from Brea Organa in Leia, Princess of Alderaan. She says, hope is a light brighter than the deepest darkness, but only we can keep it lit. So that's mm. that's Leia reflecting on things that she learned from her family. And it's really powerful to have that here. Yeah, definitely. So obviously we can get that in the movie in terms of what Holdo and Poe say to each other. Like, this is what Leia says, but Leia learned that from someone too. Yes, Exactly, and that's where all the canon stuff comes into his element, I think. And this is kind of where it belongs as well, because I don't think that the canon stuff should ever like be used as a crutch, because, yeah, it's just unrealistic, and not everyone is going to read it. But for the people that do, it does make it feel really worthwhile and relevant and important, and it, it just enriches everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, do you want to expand maybe on the stuff we get about Finn and Poe at this point? Because we haven't really talked about those characters yet. Yeah, so this was also a deleted scene. I think it's the one that's called like Not Much of a Sower. Um, <laughs> so it's Poe giving him the jacket. But what's more important than that, in my opinion, is Finn kind of asserting to Poe, hey, you know, I really believe in what you guys are doing here, um, but I didn't join this army. I followed Ray here. I just don't want you thinking I'm something I'm not. And Poe mm. doesn't really listen to him. He's kind of just like, oh, it's going to be all right. Don't worry. You're with us where you belong. 
and um, says his friend's reaction only made Finn feel more guilty. Poe didn't understand that Finn hadn't joined the attack on Starkiller Base to help the resistance, but to rescue Rey. And Mm. I know that this was deleted and I kind of understand why you can't keep everything. But to me, this is a really great beginning of Finn's arc in the novelization because it's him trying to express this to Poe, who is his friend, but at the end of the day, he doesn't know him that well. Um, And this is him figuring things out before he decides to leave the resistance and before he meets Rose and everything. And I really like the way the stuff here with you're with us where you belong. This is what bookends Finn's arc too, because later on you then get him saying to Rose, we're going back to the resistance. That's where we belong. Um, ah, yeah. Yeah. So I really liked that. Uh, yes. They were both deleted scenes, weren't they? From yeah. The film, so I remember seeing that. And in a way, I think that's a bit of a shame. Like you say, is that does provide like a nice, starting point and a nice resolution to that yeah there's a lot of emphasis on in the novelization on how finn needs to let go of ray um and you get a lot of that through his dynamic with rose and in my opinion it's done well in some ways and done pretty badly in others Um, yeah just because it falls a little too close to a trope that i'm not always comfortable with in fiction where you get this kind of jealousy between female characters yeah um so it's kind of good to have that established with Poe before he even meets Rose, just so that you kind of understand where he's coming from. Because then yeah. it kind of safeguards Finn from a lot of the stuff that Rose thinks about him at first that isn't super flattering. Um, yes. it, we know where he's coming from because we know what Finn was like in The Force Awakens. He wasn't running around after Ray like a sick puppy. Like that wasn't what was yeah. happening. It's just kind of that's what she thinks at this moment because she's grieving for Paige. She's not in a, a very good place herself and just thinks that he's a traitor right that he's being selfish yeah um and he she doesn't exactly. understand why are you going after ray what's so great about ray so yeah and that's that's to an extent that's kind of her arc to go on that level of understanding too yeah i think it's just an interesting blend of the personal and, and the political in terms of rose feelings in terms of rose's feelings about the situation because yeah i think it starts out very purely from a place of how could you betray this cause when this is like the most important thing in the galaxy right now the only line of resistance against the first order like how could you betray that just to go after this one girl you know so that i think that's the origin point of her anger and then obviously as she spends more time with him like it does evolve into a little bit of jealousy like just on a personal level you know like why are you thinking about this girl all the time when i'm right here um, but then I think it ultimately ends up in a much better and less cliched place where it's like, okay, I actually understand his feelings for Ray now. And yeah, they're not as simplistic or silly as I thought they were. Yeah, I think it yeah. starts to click for her when he compares Ray to Paige. Um, she gets really angry at him and physically shoves him away, which does not happen in the movie. And their dynamic is a lot more intense in the book. Um, yes definitely but i think that's kind of what solidifies it for finn and rose to be honest like finn's like no wait this is actually important like stop making fun of me she gave me something to fight for like for the first time in my life i had this genuine friendship um and i'm not just going to throw that away but at the same time he is starting to care more about the cause so it's like he can care about both things yeah exactly there's room for both of them in his life (laughs) (laughs) so then we'll move on to chapter eight and we have some really nice stuff again from Leia, because as we've observed, she is like the star of the show in many ways in this novel. <laughs> um, and yeah, in particular, there's a nice thought from her about Finn. I'm um, joined to read that out, Kirsty. Yeah, um, thanks. Something about the plaintive need in Finn's question touched Leia. 
The former stormtrooper was brave and capable, but there was a childlike quality about him, unguarded and almost innocent. In a galaxy riven by war, she thought, that was something to be cherished instead of punished. I think that's lovely. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it really sums up Finn pretty well as well. Um, mm. Because he does have this kind of childlike naivety and innocence. It's not a bad thing. Yes. It's, like she says, it's pretty refreshing because there's so much there in the world. But at the end of the day, he grew up in this very sheltered environment where he wasn't familiar with the normal ongoings of the galaxy. He's kind of discovering things. And you get that right through to his obliviousness where it comes from not realizing that Rose is falling for him and the kiss. And he's a bit shocked by that. Um, One thing that I noticed that um, I can't remember if it's Kennedy or Peavy thinks of Hux as this vicious child. And I thought that was Mm -hmm. a nice contrast with how Leia is thinking of Finn. That they're both childish, but like in these very different ways. Yeah. So that was a really good observation, actually, especially because Leia and then those First Order officers, they're both from the same generation, kind of. Mm. So it's the same sort of generational divide and they're looking on these younger people. Like, in one case with, like, fondness and in the other case with, like, deep annoyance and resentment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, and you're right. I think that's really great. And I also like what it says about Leia, that she would have that kind of thought. So I think often, especially in science fiction, there's this tendency to make female military leaders like real hard asses. You know, like they have to compensate for the fact that they're like women leaders in a man's world. And so then they're like tougher than anyone else and they're really hardline. Whereas with Leia, she is always super compassionate and always has that like human perspective on things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important to her leadership style. So it's really nice to see to see that reflected yeah definitely and you see that reflected a lot in the way that she reminisces about ben too like there's so much Mm. pain there yeah exactly a nice segue (laughs) because yeah in this same chapter there's a lot of really great and moving stuff about leia and her thoughts on ben i don't think we should read out the whole quotes it's very long um but yeah there's really lovely stuff so um it's basically Leia thinking about Ben at the different stages of his life. and In particular, there's a really, really cute part where she thinks about him as a toddler carrying around Hans Dice. And he just tells everyone that he wants to be a pilot like Daddy, which <laughs> is just heartbreaking. And then even more heartbreaking is that um, there's this whole part about, as an adolescent, how Ben's powers were just overflowing from him. And... Yeah, like it was uncontrollable and he kept breaking things and causing chaos in his environment. And then kind of like as a closing line, you get Ben, her son, who had been stolen from her in hand, stolen by Snoke's wiles and Luke's mistakes and his own furies, had become Kylo Ren, the champion of the First Order and his father's murderer. (laughs) Yeah, so did this shatter you, Kirsty, when you read it? It did. I thought it was really well done because it kind of paints this picture of this perfect storm that it was... Mm. Snoke, Luke, and Kylo's own mistakes. It wasn't just down to one person because it would be really easy just to pin this on Snoke or just on Kylo himself or just on Luke. But it's much more complicated than that. And that's the real tragedy. Like this was orchestrated to an extent by Snoke. And I think it comes back to this kind of conversation you were talking about with like the nature of free will for these characters, that there's a sense of destiny and doom and this fatalism where Luke, you know, has this vision of he looks into Kylo's mind and sees this darkness and thinks that's exactly where he's going. But people always have a choice at the end of the day. 
And that's, yes. that's what makes it so painful because Kylo has made mistakes and Leia acknowledges that here, that her son isn't innocent in all this. It's just so much went wrong at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Which, yeah, again, I really appreciate because it's easy when you look at what happened with Kylo to be simplistic about it and point like the finger to one party. But yeah, like you say, it's complicated and there's all these different factors and you can't assign responsibility to any one person. However much it may be desirable to just point to the like monstrous golem-like creature and say, oh yes, it was him. Mm. <laughs> because no, like it was actually like your brother who you entrusted with your child. It was partially his fault. And it was also the fault of that child himself because he wasn't just your child. He was also a young man who had responsibility for his choices and knew right from wrong. So Yeah, yeah. I thought... Um... Leia and Ben's interactions like through the force in the movie was really well done but this adaptation the novelization was really well done too because you don't just get Leia thinking about Ben you then get the other side of it so this is part um, for a moment Kylo let himself recall his parents worried conversations behind closed doors the ones they deluded themselves into thinking he wouldn't know about conversations about the anger and resentment that had boiled over once again in their son conversations in which they talked about him like he wasn't their son but some kind of monster they were frightened of him, he realized, and so they got rid of him, sending him away to his Uncle Luke, whose betrayal would prove far worse. Mm. I really love that part. And again, I think that speaks to something very real, because I think a lot of people can relate to that feeling from adolescence of, like, my, my parents, they don't like perceive me as I truly am. They look at me and they see something frightening and uncontrollable. And that in itself feels like a betrayal you know because mm -hmm. you want to feel like your parents should understand you more than anyone else in the world so when they show such a fundamental lack of understanding of you that's like horrifying <laughs> and it's like how could you <laughs> kind of it feels like the greatest betrayal i think so i think it's really really sympathetic to be honest to get into ben's mind like this and yeah realize that th this kind of thing was going on and that that's how he felt Mm -hmm. so I've always had this impression like I remember there's like all these debates about oh Han and Leia could never have been bad parents they would have been really great parents and like I've always said it's not even necessarily a question of whether they were good or bad it's the question of how Kylo perceived them and how he felt about like how they felt about him in a way you know and it's all about perception and this is his perception and when you realise that that's how he saw it, then I think you can really understand why he acted out in the way he did. To an extent, obviously. And again, it's just one factor among many. But yeah, it's really revealing for me. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really great that he has this detail about them thinking of him as a monster, or at least that's what Kylo thought they thought. Because again, you flash forward later to the Force Connection scene between him and Ray. He brings up again oh, that's what you called me in the forest when you called me a monster and you had that look in your eyes. Like It stuck with him because that's how he's come to think of himself because that's what he thinks people always think about him and always have, like even before he turned dark. That's what my parents thought of me and that's what Uncle Luke thought of me. Now that's what you think of me. So I guess I am. Yeah, exactly, which is heartbreaking. Yeah, I think later, I can't remember the exact quote, I've got it down here somewhere, but it's that when he says, yes, I am, there's no malice in his voice, it's only misery, which is like the most Byronic thing I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs>
And I think you really get that in the film as well, don't you? Just mm-hmm. from Driver's performance. Yeah. Because just that whole bitterness that that is his state of being, like bitter resignation, maybe. And ooh, it's brilliant. <laughs> and then the passage goes on to cover, obviously, Kylo, like, being tempted to fire, but obviously he withholds himself in the novel where it's explained that that's because he senses that his mother still loves him and that she like still wants him back, you know, on some level. And that's really heartbreaking. But yeah, for me, the most interesting detail that the novel adds is that Kylo, for a moment, he's thinking, oh God, I wish I could have stopped the torpedo because he wanted to protect his mother. He didn't want his mother to be blown out into space in that moment. Um, And yeah, I I just find that so interesting because it does feel like there are very rare occasions in the films where we actually see Kylo do the right thing. So I think it's interesting that Fry depicts Kylo in this moment toying with doing the right thing, like even when it's too late for him to do that because of the circumstances. And... Yeah, it's just an interesting motive, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and it really shows how he's all over the place emotionally because he went there thinking he was going to be able to fire and kill her and then he mm. stops and it's not only like, oh, I can't do it, but I'll let someone else do it. He wishes they hadn't done it. Yeah. Wishes he could actively stop it. It's like, come on, Kylo, can you make your mind up, please? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No well, commitment from that boy. Oh, too much conflict. I know I sound like Snoke. <laughs> <laughs> You're clearly a dark sider. I mean to sound like Ray. Um, yeah. So then we jump ahead to chapter nine, and there's a very important little detail here that we want to discuss, albeit quickly. Um, and yep. Yeah, so we have this: when Ray goes into the Force Tree, um, like Fry offers this little bit of detail that elucidates on an aspect of the film. Luke stepped in front of her and took one of the books off its shelf. She couldn't read the ancient runes inside, but she could feel their power. I know you have lots of feelings about this, Kirsty, <laughs> so I unleash you. I feel very strongly about this because it, I am one step closer to having my calligraphy AU as canon. Because, <laughs> okay, so we know that Ben Solo has his calligraphy set, the famous calligraphy set. <laughs> what if he can read the books and Ray can't? Ooh. Okay. What if this plays into nine in some way? I will live if it doesn't happen, but it's good fan fiction fodder in the meantime. They should totally be study partners. <laughs> That's my view. She can be like trying to translate them and then the force connection flares up and he's like, oh, I've read those. I know what it's like. <laughs> it's really boring. Ironic, huh? <laughs> but you don't oh need goodness. my help. They have to like set up a system of like trade. Like, what would she exchange? Oh no, no, let's not go there. I mean, this, okay, <laughs> people might not believe this, but this was a trope in Raylo fan fiction before the Last Jedi even came out. Before we knew that the calligraphy set was canon, that Ben Solo would have like this fancy handwriting, and Ray might stumble <laughs> across some Jedi material and be like, "Ooh, this is interesting. Who wrote this?" And it turns out that it was Ben. So that's so fun, fabulous. If that if that becomes part of canon story, I will be very happy. I would love that too. Like, I know it's bad to want to be pandered to, but I still want a little bit of pandering. I mean, as long as you don't stomp your feet and throw a tantrum on Twitter if it doesn't happen, we can have our fun in the meantime. Jesus, exactly. let's just have some perspective, people. Yeah, where's my calligraphy? <laughs> <laughs> 
Although I guess if it actually happens, then it's no longer an AU because it is the actual universe. Well, it's like the fourth bond, you know? Yeah. Canon. Mind blown. Not AU anymore. So good. <laughs> um, right, then in chapter 10, we get the first meeting between Finn and Rose. Very important. And, yeah, what you, what's the most important thing here? I guess because it's in block capitals, Rose thinks Finn is handsome. That was very important to me because I am shallow and I like my shipping. So it says, curious, she wiped her nose on her sleeve and followed him. He was tall and dark-skinned. Handsome, she fought idly. Yes, idly, as if it was of no consequence. Because she thinks it again later. Mm. So it comes up again. Like That's clearly what she's telling herself. <laughs> and he is very handsome, so you're right, Rose. He is. He is. Especially in Pacific Rim Uprising. Though Rose doesn't know that. I think Rose is so relatable. Like, I thought this in the movie, but there are certain things that she thinks to herself where I'm like, oh my God, that's me. She says, I am the biggest idiot in the history of idiots. <laughs> How cute is that? When she realizes that he was trying to escape because she's been all, you know, worshipping the hero of Finn. And then she realizes that and she's like, oh, how did I not get this? I'm such an idiot. That is adorable. <laughs> <laughs> Finn... Rose is also very self-deprecating, which I, as a British person, can appreciate. Yeah, she's she's too down on herself sometimes, but... Yeah, needs more confidence. Yeah. I think she gets that throughout the movie, right? Because I think Ryan has said before, when he was creating the character, that he wanted her to be like this nerdy girl who you don't see in Star Wars, who who doesn't necessarily fit into what you think of like this epic saga, right? Um. But she earns her hero stripes. She is a hero by the end of the movie. So it's really cool. Do you want to talk about the Poe thing? Yes, I think this is actually pretty funny. And it was something that I wondered was there in kind of Oscar's performance. You know, that bit where he's like waiting as she announces. <laughs> he, like, yeah. he like has this really serious, like the typical Poe hero look where he like looks mm. up. Um, so expectant yeah so this is commander dacey introducing amelin holdo but poe doesn't realize that yet so says poe considered the likely line of succession undoubtedly akbar would have been next in line but the old alliance veteran was dead so who no it couldn't be but he thought it could a promotion from the starfighter corps was unconventional but hadn't leia always valued personalities over military hierarchies for a moment poe was certain that dacey was looking at him but it was Vice Admiral Amalyn Holdo who stepped forward to stand next to Daisy, leaving Poe unsure if what he was feeling was relief or disappointment. To be honest, like that quote, it really does make me question Poe's intelligence. <laughs> because I- I'm sorry, but like, come on, Leia always valued personalities. She just, the last thing she did she was slap you in the face. It takes Poe a while. To, even in the movie, right? It takes him a while to get what she's trying to tell him. Like, mm. uh, he doesn't self-reflect an awful lot until towards the end of the movie where he's like, oh, Holdo did have a plan after all. <laughs> oh, po, po, po. Yeah. Also, I don't know if this is conscious, but this kind of gives me a bit of a parallel feeling with Hux, right? Because he's like, oh, I could be Supreme Leader. And Poe's like, oh, I could <laughs> I could lead. I could be the new Leia. It's like, eh, mm. really? <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me if it was, to be honest, because... I do think that Ryan put lots and lots of thought into that sort of layering. Like, especially when you think about the point we were making earlier about the whole let the past die thing and how Hux and Kylo, they're both doing that in their own ways. Mm -hmm. 
Because that's not like an obvious parallel and the film doesn't draw attention to it. But when you think about what's actually going on there, it is like, oh yeah, I actually see that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if if well told, that's what a story will do, right? All of the characters will embody these themes and questions to various degrees. So it all ties together really well. And that's what struck me with this part about Poe, that you, you have these two new, young, arrogant leaders, um, Poe and Hux. And I, I know that Hux isn't the official leader of the First Order now, that's Kylo, but I feel like it's being set up as something that's going to be a point of conflict for Nine. Yeah, definitely. And I think Hux is going to have much more interest in the practicalities than Kylo will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, like, is Poe going to be general now? Like, and, and that's, well, that's where Hux has been, but who knows what title he's going to be given in the in the movie. Yeah, I'm so, so curious about what the foundations are for episode nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's jumping ahead. <laughs> um, right, then we get a momentous part of the novelization, which is, of course, the depiction of the first Force Bond moment. For a moment, she'd thought she'd seen someone in the hut with her, a tall, pale figure, sitting quietly, with a dark, bulbous shape hovering over it and touching its face, and it was almost as if she felt something pulling at her own cheek, tracing a line up from her jaw. And yeah, that's so cool, because, again, a novel can do this in a way that a film can't, but makes it really clear that the Force Bond is physical, as well as a question of them just seeing each other, they're actually feeling what the other person feels. Yeah, the movie could have done that. It could have had Ray kind of tracing her cheek. Like, oh, what's that? But... Or gone like, ouch! Or something. <laughs> but yes. That might be a bit too on the nose. But... Yeah. And it kind of foreshadows nicely that, that, yeah, that they can feel these physical sensations through the bond. They'll be able to touch each other later. Yes. So it's a good bit of setup in that way. And yeah, I really like this um, description of like how Ray can refute Kyla's power at this point. You will bring Luke Skywalker to me, he said. But unlike on Starkiller Base, no invisible fingers burrowed into Ray's brain to root through her thoughts and secrets. Unlike on Takadana, her body responded to her commands, not his. They were just words and held no power over her. And, yeah, I really like that because it just drives home the point that already comes across in the movie, you know? The point that, while Kyla starts off being this complete jerk and trying to assert his authority, but Ray actually is empowered by that because she realizes that he's powerless to accomplish that mm-hmm. and so yeah that gives her growing confidence i think in her interactions with him so i think the very first time she sees him she's just driven by fear naturally um but then she thinks oh actually he can't harm me you know so then it's more just like anger and defiance with him but then like there is room for that to evolve into other things as we see. Exactly. And I feel like that's something that Ryan very consciously set out to do from the beginning. He wanted them just to have to talk to each other because if Mm. he put them together physically at that point, obviously they'd be trying to fight each other like they're enemies. Right. Um, Mm. But because that's not something that they can do, they just have to talk it out. So yeah, Yeah. he cannot manipulate Ray through the bond. He can only talk to her. So everything that we see between them is genuine. Yeah. This part was really cute. He says, can you see my surroundings? He sounded like a student contemplating an interesting problem and expecting her to work as his partner to solve it. That infuriated her. (laughs) You see, it's what I said about study partners. (laughs) Like, Fry wants that as well because he's setting up for it. Um, Yeah, I love that. And actually, that reminds me of something in the junior novelization for The Force Awakens. 
Because there's some really brilliant description of Kylo in that book. I think there's a line about how Kylo looks like a student who takes no pleasure in his stu- in his studies. Mm-hmm. You know, something like that. I, I don't know if that was conscious at all on Fry's part to emulate that. But I do think it lines up quite well. Yeah, it kind of puts them on a level playing field. And like they are both students. And Kylo used to be Luke's student and Ray's his current student. Um, Yeah, it's like they're equals. I feel like that's something that's emphasized throughout the story. Yeah. Exactly, that's important. And I think this next passage is also worth talking about, Kirsty, like where we get some reflection on the interrogation scene from The Force Awakens mm-hmm. and what the implications of that were. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about that a bit or read the quote? Just do whatever you think is best for the discussion, really. Sure, yeah. Um, Ray has something of a flashback to the interrogation in The Force Awakens. So it says, Kylo had rummaged through these hopes and fears, things he had no right to, but as he searched, something had changed. Even as he callously rifled through her mind, he had somehow revealed his own. Ray found herself in his mind, even as he invaded hers. She felt his rage, like a ruinous storm that filled his head, and his hatred, and his lust to dominate and humiliate those who had wronged him. But she also felt his hurt and his loneliness, and his fear that he would never prove as strong as Darth Vader, the ghost who haunted his dreams. Kylo had retreated at finding Ray in his head, had practically fled from her, but that had not been the end of that strange, sudden connection. She had seen more, far more. Somehow, almost instinctually, she knew how he accessed some of the powers at his command, even though she didn't understand him. It was as if training had become his training had become hers, unlocking and flinging open door after door in her mind. But now Ray couldn't shut those doors, and she feared what had been set loose. Kylo had urged her to let him be her teacher, had pleaded with her almost. She had rejected him, only to be rejected in turn by Luke. Mm. So all of this... There's so much there. Yeah, I mean, all of this seemed implicit in The Force Awakens, and this is kind of what we've talked about a lot with what we understood to be the interrogation, but I've actually seen this quote like publicised on sites like Slashfilm as, mm. oh, this finally is an explanation for why Rey was able to do these things in The Force Awakens. And it's like, was it not pretty clear that right after she goes into Kylo's mind, she can suddenly mind-trick the troopers? Yeah. No, and I find it that really striking as well. So I've seen people act like it's some kind of retcon. That is something that was not in any way intended by JJ with The Force Awakens, but that Ryan kind of saw that as an opportunity and then said this was what was actually happening, even though that wasn't what JJ had in mind. And I just don't buy that. For me, it's pretty clear that this kind of thing was happening, that there was a mental exchange going on. I think that's really explicit, to be honest. So the fact that some people are surprised by that is a bit weird to me. Yeah, I mean, JJ wasn't going to spell it out because it was paving the way for the next chapter of the story but you kind of see it in their interactions from then on like even on the cliff edge when they're fighting in on starkiller base like you you get those choker shots of the looks back and forth like they're connecting in some way Mm. i guess that's why all of those theories came down from like oh ray would have been at the academy when kylo was younger and everything and they knew each other because how else would she have been so powerful and then that's what kind of led to two years of ray's and mary sue that this all seemed very obvious to me on first viewing of The Force Awakens. Yeah. Like, it's just it's there in the story that they go deep into each other's minds and you see that back and forth. It's not shown to the audience because you're kind of almost a voyeur in that situation, right? You're watching this thing mm-hmm. that's very private for these two characters, but it's still yeah. there in the story. It's just you're not, yeah. it's not spelled out. Exactly. And I think it's really easy to be very ham-fisted about that sort of thing. Because mild spoilers for Pacific Rim Uprising, but in that film, there's the whole conceit where 
to pilot these big robot things that attack the giant lizards and that's basically the premise of the movie you know it's like giant robots punching giant lizards it's quite simple um but the pilots that power the giant robots they have to be mentally in sync so it's called like drift compatible or something and they depict that in the movie by like showing these like rushes of memories and how they're kind of like a muddle with like both the people's like memories kind of like interweaving and like going in both directions, you know? Mm. But because they literally show memories in that film, it does feel very obvious and very in your face. And I'm really glad they veered away from doing anything like that in this sequel trilogy because, yeah, it would make what's going on there completely indisputable. But I think then that robs some of the magic from it, you know? So there is meant to be a certain element of mystery and you're not meant to know exactly what they're seeing. Exactly. And it's the same later on when they see the visions, right? We're not shown the visions because it's supposed to be part of the ongoing story. You're not quite supposed to know. It's supposed to be a little bit of a mystery. So on page 141 of the novel, um, we have Finn and Rose on Canto Bay at this point. And there's just some nice like banter between them. Like a lot of it's about Ray, but I think it's nice and worth talking about because... Yeah, it's kind of more positive. It's not just like, oh, Ray, why are you always <laughs> thinking about Ray? You know, yeah. there's like other stuff going on that makes it more interesting. So you get cute stuff like Rose like asks if Ro- Ray will have a Padawan braid. <laughs> um, and yeah, I love that sort of thing because it does remind you that stuff like the prequel era Jedi, that will be part of like the popular mythology and part of the popular imagination in this world. Like, that won't have just been forgotten because it was really only, like, gosh, like 60 or so years ago. So there are people still alive that remember when the Jedi Order existed and was in control. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think it's nice that little reminders like this acknowledge that. Yeah, I think that reference is used pretty well here because it's kind of this visual signifier that Ray would have changed in this clear way. Like, Finn scoffs at the idea that Ray would be a Jedi, you know? She's always going to be Ray. Um, and it ties back into like their final when they are finally reunited at the end of the film and in the movie and in the book sorry um it's like yes she was still ray but she was a little different because that's that's going to be what happens right um rose says here she's on her own path she told him you need to find yours and he says thank you wise master rose anytime young Ling." like how cute is that (laughs) they're like play acting as master and padawan so you're yeah. right, it is like, this is what people know as the the mythology of the Jedi, that they bring it in as like the almost these like pop culture references when they're, they're playing <laughs> yes. with each other. It's adorable. Yeah, that was really cute. And then on page 147, we get Luke relating the flashback about Ben. And of course, as he does in the film, he omits certain key details. <laughs> and yeah. There's an interesting line. Is it kind of like from an inner monologue from Luke? No, this is what he says to her. After she says, you know, she says in the movie, um, you didn't fail Kylo, Kylo failed you. This is here as a response. So I don't know if it was originally in the script and then it got cut. Um, Mm. He says, I don't know who's more dangerous, the pupil who wants to destroy me or the one who wants to become me. <laughs> Which is pretty dark to say that to her, Luke. Like you're comparing her to Kylo and you're saying you're not sure if she's more or less dangerous than Kylo Ren. Mm, that is very dark. And yeah, it's also an interesting like existential thing, isn't it? You know? Like what makes the world a worse place, like my destruction or the emulation of me. 
Yeah, because in, in a weird way, yeah. we've talked about this before, Luke is on a level with Kylo in that he thinks the Jedi need to end. Mm. So, of course, he doesn't want Kylo to kill him, but he thinks that the Jedi Order should end just the same way. Yeah. Whereas Rey obviously wants it to continue, and she wants to learn and be a Jedi herself. So, it's very yeah. interesting. It is. And, yeah, there's also, like, some more nice build-up of the relationship between Rey and Luke with them. Like both dancing after the whole caretaker scene, which was one of the deleted scenes we've discussed before, and yeah, I think that's really cute um, because it does kind of drive home the tenderness that's built between them, and like I think it also plays into this whole like more fully realized arc that you get with Rain Luke in the novel, because yeah, I think in the film because obviously you are missing quite a few of the deleted scenes, you don't get as much insight into their relationship as individuals I think you do miss out on that like gradual appreciation of each other which develops it always feels quite cold they never really feel like they care for each other in any way in the film to be honest like I feel like that Ray teaches Luke something important and that he comes to appreciate her but I don't feel like it's a very personal thing it feels like it's a more like intellectual thing for him mm -hmm. whereas the novel does make it more personal which I think is really nice. Yeah, there's this like very bittersweet moment when she she's dancing with him and then he says, oh, well, you don't need me. Do you understand that now? I'm old and broken. The resistance needs someone young like you. And she like angrily leaves. But that's that's what kind of helps him go, oh, God, I think she might be right. And he decides then to reconnect with Leia. And then as mm -hmm. we'll see later, that then feeds into him being like, Ray was right. I hope she hasn't left. I need to go with her. And that's that's what we see in the movie is him running in and interrupting her with Kylo in the hut. So mm. it really does lend this greater element of tragedy that he had come full circle, decided that Ray was right. And I think there are some references to the cosmic force when he realizes that. He realizes that the force brought Ray to him. But um, I really like the way Fry describes it because he says that it's not just about Ray as like this instrument of the force. It's that she is an, a young woman with her own needs too and that mm. he needs to do right by her as well which is kind of what yoda says right that yeah you know you lost ben solo but you can't lose ray um yeah so yeah it's really great okay so then ray decides to go to the mirror in the cave and um, it says when her tears finally ebbed ray lifted her head she knew who she had to talk to about the cave, about what she had sought and what it had shown her. Someone who would understand how solitude and loss could eat away at you until there was nothing left. Um, and I think that's done really well because I, th I think Jason Fry spoke about the challenge of writing this um, as opposed to in the movie when it's like revealed that Ray is actually talking to Kylo the whole way through the mirror sequence. Um, mm. But this is like she goes through that experience and then she's she's saying, oh, I know who I need to go and talk to about this because someone who relates because they know solitude and it does present that idea of like well you know that could be luke because he's living this life yeah. of solitude and loss but no it's not mm. it's her peer it's kylo ren yeah exactly so i do think that was the best way of handling it in terms of like the novel yeah because yeah you can have that surprise in the same way but that's a good equivalent I remember watching it in the cinema and being so confused when that voiceover started kicking in. I was like, what is happening? Like, I saw obviously you already appreciated it was like a bold, risk-taking movie, you know, but actually, like, getting her speaking over things like that, I was like, I don't understand. And then to realise that she was talking to Kylo, it was like, whoa. It was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
when when she reaches the hut and sees Kylo there, says the connection between them was so raw and powerful that it reminded her of touching a live wire in the wreckage of a starship. She had closed her eyes, opened them, and found Kylo Ren there, right next to her where she sat on the stone bench, as if she could actually reach out and touch his hand, his face, his hair. At the sight of him, she'd felt relief surge through her. Ooh. Yeah, it's getting pretty intimate and like emotional at this point. You can really sense that she like relates to him on what is beyond the intellectual level. <laughs> Shall we say business partners? Oh yeah, totally. That's what they're doing here. They're they're shaking hands. They're making a business deal. Yeah, nothing more than that. She's thinking about touching his hair, but in a strictly platonic way. Okay. I I know. I always touch the hairs, the hair of my platonic business partners. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. It's great. (laughs) Page one hundred ninety-seven. We get. <clears throat> the escape pod that Ray obviously goes to the supremacy in, and it's explicitly referred to as a coffin, which I'm very happy about because obviously that was a conscious design choice for Ryan. I think it said that mm. in the art book, um, but I just really appreciate that as some of her kind of fairy tale imagery there. Same. And then you get that exchange when Kylo comes to meet Ray in the escape pod, and he's kind of already expecting her. And there's this whole part. Okay, let me find the find the book. But just this whole page is just great. And I understand why it's not in the in the film itself because it probably would have destroyed some of the tension. Where there's this like mystery where she doesn't really know where she stands because she sees the troopers there with the handcuffs and everything. Yeah. Um, but it says that he smiles when he sees her. Um, what does it say? Be fine. Oh, the stormtroopers behind him stood ready, but he just smiled at the sight of Ray crammed into the pod's tight confines. His smile faded at the sight of his uncle's lightsaber. I'll take that, he said. It belongs to me. Ray was tempted to tell him to come and get it as Finn had, and remind him that she'd driven him to his knees at Starkiller Base and disarmed him, that he would bear the mark of that jewel forever, and lived only because she had chosen not to strike him down. But that wasn't why she had come, and they both knew it. Still, she held the lightsaber appraisingly for a moment, to remind Kylo that she was the one who had set this chain of events in motion. Strange, then, that it called to me at the castle, Ray said, studying the ancient weapon almost idly before snapping her gaze back to Kylo, and not to you. The corner of Kylo's mouth twitched in the beginning of a smile, and he inclined his head at the soldiers filling the hangar. You're in no position to dictate. Ray held the hilt to him as if daring him to take it. The stormtroopers shifted uneasily. Kylo frowned, then reached out, <laughs> his scarred face momentarily uncertain. The slightest tremor disturbed his black-gloved fingers as he reached out for the weapon, sitting motionless in Ray's steady hand. This, is, this whole thing is adorable. Like, I, don't, I don't have time to read it all out. No, it's fantastic. I, I love that banter. It's so hand-layered to me. Yeah. Like, obviously under even more extreme circumstances. But just that like back and forth and that... like witty repertoire they have going it's great Mm -hmm. and then in the elevator it's um obviously we get the dialogue as it is in the movie but when she says like i'll help you i saw it it's your destiny she watched the emotions chase themselves across his face echoed by jitters and spikes in the force anger confusion pain loneliness longing sorrow and then later um what is it oh when, when he says, like, his whole thing about, I saw who your parents are, Ray stared at him, but there was no lie in Kylo's eyes, and a terrifying realisation bloomed in her mind. Kylo's churning emotions weren't just about himself, they were also about her. 
Mm-hmm. I think I emotions, so you say. I, I always feel churn in emotions about my platonic business partner. Me too. <laughs> oh my goodness. I love it because they go just as far as they feel they can in terms of the romantic stuff. So it's never obviously like Ray sense that Kylo loved her with all his heart. <laughs> but they're like approaching that. Baby steps. Baby steps. Yeah, just some of the language, obviously. Churning emotions, like the idea of their connection being the live wire in the wreckage of a ship, like having that energy and spark. Mm. Come on, guys. It's really fantastic. Um, yep, so then in chapter 25... We get lots and lots of stuff on Snoke. It felt like it went on for pages and pages. Yeah, we obviously cannot read all this stuff out, but it was pretty interesting. And I'd like to think that it would satisfy people who really felt kind of cheated about the lack of Snoke backstory in the movie. Mm. It gives you as much as Fry is free to give us because this story is obviously going to be told in more detail at a later date. Like, there's no way that they can't tell you about the rise of the First Order and how Snoke yeah. became their leader. But it's really cool that it references things from the books that we already have, like Brandall Hux and Ray Sloan, and how Snoke wasn't the one who was going to be their leader. Like, it, it kind of came out of nowhere somehow. So there's obviously a really interesting story there that's waiting to be told. Mm. And um, not only how he became to be First Order leader, but how he had targeted the Skywalker family. He was very much aware that Ben was this legacy child who would have huge amounts of potential. Mm. Do you want me to read these parts out? Uh, yeah, sure. Thank you. So it says, like his father, Skywalker had been a favoured instrument of the will of the cosmic force. And so Snoke had drawn upon his vast store of knowledge, parceling it out to confuse Skywalker's path ensnare his family and harness Ben Solo's powers to ensure both Skywalker's destru- destruction and Snoke's triumph. That's really interesting. I do wonder what parceling it out even means. Like, do you have any ideas about that? Like, does that perhaps mean like having multiple apprentices and like giving them out like dollops of knowledge? Like, what do you get from that? Um, nothing specific. It just kind of sounds to me like he unfurled his plan over time. That he like targeted mm. Ben from a pretty young age. We don't know exactly, although there have been hints yeah. about it in other books. But that this was his plan to like slowly but surely manipulate this family and like ensure this level of betrayal, so that Ben Solo would go running to him. Yeah. So no, that makes sense. Yeah. So there's there's more when um, you know it goes on for several pages. So it's it's all kind of intertwined with what we see in the movie. Is like. So Kylo's reaction to Snoke revealing that he'd formed their bond. Kylo Ren had remained kneeling in the throne room as Snoke tormented Rey, his face an impassive mask. Now he looked up in surprise, his eyes locked on his master. Snoke ignored the pleading look on Kylo's face, just as he ignored the sickly waves of pain and confusion that rolled out from him into the fall. (laughs) That was one of the most painful descriptions, I think, for me in the whole novel. Sickly waves of pain and confusion. Like, oh, like, that's just so, like, hard hitting to me. Because Adam Driver, he plays it very, very subtly. So his face doesn't betray much. You see the shock, but obviously he's very good at hiding what he's feeling beyond that. It does intrigue me, the fact that Snoke's clearly aware of how Kylo's feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he apparently doesn't register the importance of that and what that means. You know, because if he were actually thinking about it in, like any sensible or logical way, he'd think, 
oh shit, he really actually cares about this being fake, doesn't he? <laughs> Maybe that means he cares about this girl. Hmm, what could that mean? In a weird <laughs> you know? way, it's like later on, oh, this part, Snoke laughed. Bridging their minds had been a gamble, one he had weighed for some time, but it had worked even better than Snoke had hoped. It had fought the girl into revealing Skywalker, but it had also forced Kylo to confront his weaknesses. By eliminating Rey, he would also be excising the flawed, hesitant, weak half of himself. So it's like Snoke acknowledges that Kylo has feelings for Rey, basically. He's like, yes, mm. she is the flawed, emotional half of himself, and he has to eliminate that. But it's like, well, obviously he's not going to because you just revealed to him that you betrayed him. Like, you've manipulated yeah. him. <laughs> Exactly. And oh, it's just like, how can you be so insightful in so many ways, like appreciating what Ray represents in relation to Kylo, but not understanding what that means in terms of how he'd be affected by that? Yeah. Like, that's so interesting. Yeah. Maybe it comes from like a, like asexual, like race of aliens <laughs> where they don't have like different genders and they just reproduce. <laughs> like sexlessly it's interesting because there's also this part here where he directly references anakin and his sentiment but still is not putting two and two together like Mm. he's drawing parallels again with kylo and the rest of his family members he had sensed his apprentice's enormous potential when he was a child the latent power of the skywalker bloodline was impossible to miss and he had also seen how to exploit the boy's feelings of inadequacy and abandonment and his mother's guilt and desperation to contain the darkness within her child he called himself kylo ren but as with so much else about him, that was more wish fulfillment than reality. He had never escaped being Ben Solo, or learned to resist the pull of the weak and pathetic light, or had the strength to excise the sentimental streak that had destroyed his legendary grandfather. So it's like, yeah, you're seeing this in Kylo. He has sentiment, he has emotion. Of course, Snoke characterizes it as weakness, whereas we would characterize it as strength. But it's like, yes, he is too much like the rest of his family, and you see that, but he's still aren't seeing what's coming your way (laughs) is a delicious irony which is why i love it so much yeah i I love come up and it's even better we've talked about it before is like kylo being desperate to be like vader but he doesn't recognize the side of his father uh, his grandfather that is anakin that had all Mm. love both for padme and luke so it really comes full circle here beautifully the praetorian guard fight like it's always going to be hard to describe those fights in satisfying detail to be honest like you really can't compare with seeing it on screen but oh yeah as as good a job as he can yeah is that he's always gonna fall flat i think yeah. but by comparison because it is so so visual you know and it's not the kind of thing where it benefits a great deal from getting into the characters like inner monologues you know so oh i better dodge him oh got a duck yeah <laughs> you know so yeah, I think he does a good job with the aftermath, which is obviously what we would consider like Kylo making his offer, like presenting this proposal to Rey. Um, Rey and Kylo stood amidst the smoke and carnage, gasping for breath, then looked at each other. Rey's eyes were filled with joy. Because <laughs> here comes the heartbreak. Um, <sighs> Kylo was a pace away now, his eyes locked on hers. You have no place in the story, he said. You come from nothing. You are nothing. And then his eyes softened. But not to me. Join me, please. And then it skips forward, obviously, because it, it has to go away to other parts of the action. Um, page 250, which is Ray's response. Kylo's gloved hand is held out to her in supplication. Kylo, his entreaty rejected, had flung up his own hand. <laughs> so it's really emphasizing that this was like a genuine like, supplication. 
entreaty like this was a genuine emotional offer um mm. and i love the exactly. detail of the kyber crystal once they've they're both reaching out to grab it the kyber mm. crystal is trying to find harmony where there was only dissonance so that's really telling us that the force and the legacy saber because kyber crystals to an extent have this like sentience almost at least they they do described in recent canon right the ahsoka book and stuff like that um yeah. that it wants to be in balance and this idea that they were in balance just now they were sharing this fight together they were on the same side or at least they thought they were and now everything is wrong again yeah i i really do think that the force is the greatest railo shipper of them all <laughs> even more so than snoke because snoke kind of gets it but doesn't see the full picture oh well, yeah Whereas he I wanted think... to use it to to have his own ends yeah Yeah, exactly whereas the force just wants to smoosh them together yeah i mean hopefully unselfishly yeah we've said this before but the imagery of like the the chasm between the monster killer base like driving them apart so they can't kill each other and then the kyber crystal between them like showing that they're equals they're equally strong and then snapping because they've they can't find this way to be together again like i'm so Mm. interested to see whether jj will continue that imagery in nine because it's really yeah. symbolism, it's beautiful. Exactly. And hopefully use it in such a way where it's like, no, now you can be together because mm-hmm. you did something right with us. <laughs> then flash forward to page 259 when Kylo wakes up. Um, Kylo considered that Ray had recovered first. She must have realized that he was at her mercy, yet she'd left him alive, almost as if she cared for him. But of course, at this point, he's like, she can't possibly care for me. She said no. Afraid me. <laughs> I mean, it's just a ball of rage and anger and oh, hurt. Yeah, and it's very embarrassing. <laughs> no, it is the whole section of Kylo on crate and everything. It's like you're feeling a lot of his pain. It's agonizing to watch him, but it's also like embarrassing. It's like get it yeah. together, dude. Exactly. It's like you did so much right, and then it all went so wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Junior novelization actually goes into it really well um, when he makes this offer that Ray is tempted but she cannot join him. Um, she just can't cross that moral line. So this is really the agony for these characters that they want to be together, but they're both coming at it from fundamentally different places, or at least they think that. So, Yeah. And at this stage, there can be no compromise between them because they're so extreme. Mm-hmm. And the, the next part, when Ray is reflecting on how she left Kylo, which is obviously missing from the movie, and I wish that they, there had been a way to do this, but at the same time, Ryan probably wanted to obscure it for the audience. Um, page 260, that's Ray reflecting on leaving Kylo. Um, we don't have time to read the whole page, but um, there's so much here that points towards the idea of Ray waiting um, for Kylo. It says, Ray would wait, however difficult that would be. She would wait, and the future would unfold as the Force willed it. And there's there's references to how I think it was uh, like that Luke's mistake was to think that Kylo's choice was already made, and her mistake was to think that it was already it was simple. Um, I think let me check actually. I think that's this. I think that's it. Okay. That's definitely the sentence. All right, well, not the exact word. Sometimes I get the various novels and books mixed up. Yeah, no, I definitely remember reading that. Yes, here it is, yeah. Luke's error had been to assume that Ben Solo's future was predetermined, that his choice had been made. Her error had been to assume that Kylo Ren's choice was simple, that turning on Snoke was the same as rejecting the pull of the darkness. The future she saw now was a range of possibilities. So I really like this because it's Rey coming on this journey um, that's 
obviously intertwined with Luke's and Kylo's, but that she has this inner reflection of, yes, I'm starting to understand how the Force works now, and I'm I'm going to be at peace with it. I'm going to make my peace. I'm not going to fight it. I'm going to let the Force play things out as it wills and have faith that things will turn out the way they're supposed to. Mm. And that's really where she is at the mindset when she closes the door at the end, and we'll talk about it in a second, when she severs that connection. And from Kylo's perspective, she doesn't have any compassion on her face anymore. She has this blank, like, it will be what it will be, you know? Yeah. She's kind of washing her hands for the moment. She's like, I've done what I can, and now it's on you to an extent. Yeah, which I think is very mature and like surprisingly mature in a way, to be honest, response to that, because it's like, wow, I don't think I'd be that strong in that situation. That's obviously why Ray's the hero of the story. But I think it'll be interesting to see how much of that is Ray telling herself that in order to like cope and move forward. And like, how much will she actually be able to practice that position? Because I'm sure that going forward in the future storytelling about that dynamic, there will be temptation and there will be things that happen that cause her to think, damn, can I keep on waiting? <laughs> like, she'll be tested, you know? Yeah. And I think I'm so, so intrigued to see how that's all handled. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure more is going to play out in episode nine that, like, brings all of this full circle. Like, there's going to be that reconciliation, however it plays out. But it's really great for Ray to end at this point there. Like, just that she gave it her best shot, right? Like, but they're both in fundamentally different places and she can't force someone to change their mind so exactly and I think it's the most empowering thing for her because I think the worst message these films could be sending is well if at first you don't succeed in turning the evil one back from the dark try try again (laughs) you know because at a certain point you do need to leave them to it and Kylo at this point he needs to be the one who comes to that realisation and thinks, holy shit, I need to change for whatever reason, you know? It can't be Ray constantly trying to drag him back to the light. Because in a way that also robs him of his own age. I was going to say, it's just as much for his sake too, because if he had chosen to go just for Ray, what kind of arc would that have been? Like, he has to actually mm. change in a moral sense too. Exactly. So yeah, I definitely think it was the right choice. And I really like that whole passage from the novel. Because, yeah, like there is like a sad like gap, really, for Rey past the point when the lightsaber splits. Because really her story is over by that point. That's the culmination of her story in the movie. And then she just needs to hang around for what's basically like an epilogue mm-hmm. to her arc. Yeah. And... Yeah, I kind of feel like that should have been the true epilogue because really, like, her story in The Last Jedi is so tightly bound up with Kylo Ren's that you kind of need that resolution and you need to get a proper sense of where she ends in relation to that, you know, because the film doesn't give you that. And that is one thing that frustrates me. So I'm glad the the book provides in that way. Yeah, I think it's emphasized really well that, like, if it was just those two people in the galaxy and they had no wider political... things to consider then there would be no obstacles but there are obstacles and that's why this is only the second act exactly this is not just about them it's also about the sides mm-hmm. okay can we talk about finn and rose kissing yes please <laughs> go for it okay so page 286 um rose inclined her head and kissed finn just in case he hadn't heard her or had missed her meaning 
the big goof had a good heart, but he also had a way of missing the obvious. I really liked this because, again, like it, her line in the movie here about you know saving what you love, um, not destroying what you hate, it really sums up the story very well. Um, and I mm. believe it's going to be something of a mission statement for nine, but we'll see. Um, but I think it's a good way of kind of channeling, acknowledging the subtlety of that too, because he also had a way of missing the obvious. It's like, well, some of the criticisms of that storyline have been that there wasn't a ton of build up to this romance. Mm. So I think the beauty of it is that we actually saw a lot of that storyline unfold from Finn's perspective and not Rose's. But in the novelization, you get more of Rose's. So we've seen references to her thinking he's handsome, that he has a good heart, that Paige would think about. She's thinking about what her sister would have thought about this man, right? She's obviously yes. to him, even if she hasn't quite acknowledged it herself yet. And then at the end, this is on her terms. She's kissing him. He's obviously surprised by it. But it comes back to things that like John Boyega was saying in interviews before the movie even came out that Finn is a stormtrooper. He doesn't know what's going on. Like he's kind of a bit oblivious to romance and what some girl he just met might think of him and feel about him. I really love that. Yeah, that is so true. And it does feel very consistent as well with that whole thing about like Leia observing how childlike he is, you know? Mm-hmm. See, that does extend to his um, like whole experience with romance and stuff because yeah it's basically non-existent yeah and we get an extra detail between them and interaction as you know as he's like dragging her along back to the base um Mm. he didn't have time to process what she said to him before she kissed him um and she wakes up a little bit and she says when we met i was dragging you she said quietly and gave him a smile now you're dragging me he nodded and smiled back at her then hurried for the trench we've come a long way haven't we isn't that so cute I think that's adorable. <laughs> I do wonder if that's like a deleted scene or if um that's just something that Fry came up with. Yeah. That was always like a game I played when reading novelizations. It's like deleted line or novelization original. Mm-hmm. So it's something like um Luke and Ray dancing. I think we can say with like ninety eight percent certainty that that was Fry. Um, because I think otherwise we'd have seen some evidence of that in the deleted scene. Um Whereas with a lot of other stuff, there's just no way of telling, to be honest. Yeah, the only other way to tell is if it turns up in both versions of the novelization, something like that. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I, I really like this interaction. I get, again, it's the kind of thing that I get why it's not in the movie, but that's the beauty of a novelization that can give you these extra little tidbits. And yeah, it, it emphasizes again that these two characters have come to mean a lot to each other and it, it bookends their arc together. So. Um, yep. And then on page 293 we get some insight into the goings-on inside the First Order Command Shuttle <laughs> with Kylo and Hux. And, yeah, it's really interesting. So, again, we get more of Hux's perspective and he realises how terrified Kylo is. And that leads him to conclude a fear meant weakness and opportunity. So, yeah, we kind of acknowledged it before, but there's really heavy foreshadowing for what Hux might be getting up to in Episode Nine. Of course, anything like this, it's important to take with a pinch of salt because... I'm pretty sure the novelization of The Last Jedi will be the last resource um, J.J. Abrams will be consulting <laughs> when sure. coming up his story. But you can but see it I in think the movie. it's valid. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's why I think it's reasonable to think that will factor in. Mm-hmm. I certainly hope it does. I think it's a wasted opportunity otherwise. Yeah, he just does a really good job of kind of expanding on these little micro-expressions and gestures you get from Donal's acting. Um, this is, again, another reflection on the part of Hux. He says, Ren had never been so wise. He was incapable of it 
a slave to his emotions. That wouldn't do in a supreme leader. It would endanger all Hux and his technologists had created. Well, Hux wouldn't allow it. And the more delusions Ren suffered, the easier it would be to arrange for him to be sidelined and eliminated. <laughs> so good. Possibility. Ruthless. I kind of like have visions of like um, Hux poisoning Kylo's teeth. <laughs> you know, like in Crimson Peak, yeah. how when um, Mia Wasikowska goes to the like mansion... And then the sister of her husband is like gradually poisoning her. Yeah, it's like yeah, this idea that like he wants Ren to suffer more delusions. It's like, is he gonna try and trick him into thinking something, or what is he gonna do? Like some kind of level of manipulation. This is all in relation to like Kylo's response to seeing his uncle again. So it's like, well, how is mm. that gonna play into nine? <laughs> Maybe Hux will like put on a Vader suit and be like. <laughs> Kylo Ren, I'm disappointed in you. You're a terrible supreme leader, you are. You should let General Hux take over. Star Wars A Christmas Carol. (laughs) Poor Kylo, he'd be like a wreck. And then we get um, Luke and Kylo's actual confrontation. Um, So Luke is sensing Kylo's anger and pain, but something else. It says, even stronger than the anger were Kylo's pain and fear. They filled him, threatening to devour him. Ben Solo had sought to abandon everything he had been, even casting aside his name. But Luke sensed that Kylo Ren was just a shell around the same broken boy he had tried so hard to reach. (laughs) Yeah. Again, I love anything like that that drives home the um, compassion between um, uncle and nephew. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's easy to watch the film, especially on first watch. And just see Luke being like a complete hard ass. Yeah, because there's a lot of humour in the scene as well, you know, with his whole like, oh, I'm sure you are. There's so much going on. And there's so much history between these two characters, obviously. Um, mm. And the Mark's acting in that scene is amazing, where it switches, like, you can see in his eyes, like, this warmth and compassion, and is saying, no, you know, strike me down and I'll always be with you, just like your father. Um, yeah, you can really see that Luke can see through Kylo's persona. Because that's what Kylo Ren is, a persona. Ben Solo is still there. He's still the same person. Yeah. He's just trying to protect himself. And in doing so, he's hurting everyone else. Yeah, exactly. And like later on, what he says to Luke, um, like it just indicates how childish he is. He says, Ray, your chosen one, chosen over me. She aligned herself with the old way that has to die. No more masters. I will destroy her, you, and all of it. Know it. And then Luke smiled at his nephew sadly. And again, like it's just shown him as like this hurt little child who's like lashing out against everything, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but like, I don't think Luke takes him seriously at all. Well, he definitely doesn't in the film. I think, and I think that comes across even more strongly in the film than the book. But yeah, I think I think that's like as it should be. Obviously, he should be taken seriously in the fact that he's the head of this evil military organization with tremendous power but like as a person he's so fragile and yeah luke's is certainly the first to recognize that Mm -hmm. um i'd also just like to talk about um the reunion between finn and ray because Mm -hmm. that's really beautifully described yeah we get and she was different but the old ray wasn't gone and it was that ray who fell into finn's arms sobbing and laughing at the same time and holding him tight and yeah, I think that's a beautiful bookend to that, given how much emphasis there is in the novelization, especially on like that bond and how much Finn cares for Ray. 
and particularly that fear that she might change mm -hmm. like and i think it's like a nice healthy resolution to that because it's not saying ray's exactly the same is acknowledging how she's been changed by her experiences but is also stressing that that core of who she was is still intact which is lovely yeah it nicely acknowledges that ray has gone on this journey and so is finn and they are at very different points now but for this moment they're reunited and they're just so happy to be in each other's arms again and then it, it just kind of sets things up nicely for nine that it will be like once they start talking or once ray somehow reveals that she has this bond with a supreme leader or whatever like more is going to come out but for now we just have this lovely moment between them yeah exactly it's really beautiful um is there anything else you'd like to discuss, Kirsty, in this very end of the book? I know we have a few more notes, well, but we have I don't this, think anything's vastly different. We had questions about the last force connection, because I think some people are wondering if Ray's severing it, and I think the word describing it is severed, and leaving Kylo alone in the gloom with his father's dice resting in the palm of his upraised hand. I think people are wondering if that means that that's actually her ending the fact that they have this force connection, and I just do not think so. No, I don't think so. And I think a very similar word, maybe even severed again, is used to describe how an earlier connection is terminated. Mm -hmm. I think maybe even that's the word that's used, terminated. You know, there is some suggestion that while they can't control when the bond activates, they can control when it ends. Yeah. Particularly Ray. <laughs> it's like probably I get the impression because Kylo never wants it to end. <laughs> because Ray generally does at some point. She'll talk to him for a bit, but then she's like, nope, not having it. Um, so yeah, I didn't read that as a very final thing. And I think Jason Fry was, for obvious reasons, very ambiguous in terms of how he wrote that. Because he didn't want to write it. Ray permanently severed the connection, which was never to be reactivated ever, ever again. Because, well, that's dumb. Because then if JJ decides he wants to use that, well, then it looks stupid, doesn't it? Exactly. <laughs> you know? Like, he hasn't read the script for Nine. Even the actors haven't read the script for Nine. So... Yeah, I think to a certain extent, it's like the, he severs it. He chose to have Ray sever it at that point because this is the end of this part of the story. So mm. that's the end of that arc. Oh, yep, the connection's gone. Kylo's on his own. It's in the dark. He wanted everything. He's got his title as Supreme Leader, and yet he's left with nothing. Even the dice disappear. So it's giving us that dramatic emphasis that this is the end of this part of the story. What next, you know? Exactly. And by losing everything, he realises what he actually wants. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. No, so that doesn't worry me at all. Yeah. And again, like it's deliberately ambiguous for yeah reasons that we've already covered. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that brings us to an end for this episode and for a few weeks for the reasons I explained at the start of the show. So yeah, feel free to go back and listen to older episodes or go and seek out some other lovely Star Wars podcasts until we come back, at which point we fully expect you all to be eagerly awaiting our next episode. Because <laughs> <laughs> of course. Very modest, Rachel. Um, oh yeah, super modest. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm Rachel and you can find me at Star Wars Nonsense on Tumblr and Journal the Star Wars and WordPress. Where can people find you, Kirsty? I'm Bastila Bay on Tumblr and Scavengers Horde on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, bye! Bye!